Welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 292, Sterling versus O'Malley. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen, the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network. Keith, how are you doing today? Dude, I'm doing wicked good. Oh. I'm in, I'm in New England. The fights are in Boston and Beantown. I'm wicked <laughs> excited. I got I got I got my Red Sox hat on. I got the goat jersey. I'm not talking about Bo Nickel. I'm talking about Tom Brady. I'll I'll I'll, I'll pop open. I'll, I get it open. I'll pop, <laughs> op, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll pop open a, uh, a. Where am I? Where am I at? A nice right Sam there. Adams for you. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, for those Let's of you go. who are enjoying this on uh, an audio-only podcast format, you are missing quite the show here as <laughs> Keith looks like I, some dude from Barstool Sports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, obviously, you doing, this is, I am doing great. Uh, I'm not doing as well as you because uh, the UFC isn't touching down in Texas this weekend. But Hold no. on, hold on, hold on. Did you say oh, Texas? I said the magic word, and now we got – oh, that was quite the sight right there. Uh, obviously, this is uh, the UFC with one of their uh, – well, one of their, at least on paper originally, bigger deal pay-per-view events of the year in the TD Garden in Boston. It still has two title fights at the top uh, featuring one champ who, fair or not, still has a lot to prove, one who – is building on her case as one of the most dominant women ever ever to uh, lace them up. But the rest of this, down the card, uh, this card's got taken quite a few body blows. Uh, we've lost <laughs> a couple of matchups. Uh, some room had to be made on the card for this to be the de facto finale of the season 31 of The Ultimate Fighter. There is a lightweight final taking place on this card. There is a bantamweight final probably taking place and we don't even know who all's in it, at least officially, because uh, there's still one episode to go. So that's kind of weird. Uh, I mean, give me your general temperature on this card. Uh, all we have are 10 fights to talk about, though we probably should have 11 by the time it rolls around. Uh, how are you feeling about this one for 80 bucks? Yeah, so um, people who are listening to this show, you know, probably, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, they'll know the the fight who Bracketone is fighting. Uh, we don't know. Um, we, even if we didn't, could find out. Uh, we're not gonna Josh Gross ourselves, <laughs> and uh, or, or Ariel Hawani ourselves, or anyone yeah, else yeah, who's yeah. drawn the wrath. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so this is actually going up a day late again. I want to apologize once again. It wasn't Ben. It was me. Uh, from now into probably Labor Day, my life is super crazy. So. Hopefully, uh, I'll get back on uh, on the same schedule. So I apologize once again to those who who like to listen to or watch this show on on the Monday morning. Uh, that's on me again. So thanks for being patient. Uh, as far as the card, yeah, um, it it takes some it takes some heavy blows. I mean, it, you go down losing Rob Font versus Song Yudong, you know, two ranked bantamweights. That fight being completely scrapped hurts. Uh, Mario Batista versus Cody Sanhagen being scrapped. Even if Batista gets an, a, an opponent, you know, most likely they want to get someone. At least the name value of Cody, uh, um, Cody Garbrandt. Yeah. You know, um, will will they get someone as good as him at this point? Maybe, but uh, 
you know, uh, even like some of the replacements, getting Neil Magny instead of Jeff Neal, uh, probably about the equal test in different ways for Ian Gary, but not as exciting as a violent guy like Jeff Neal. And then the last one, losing, you know, former two-way champion Henry Suhudo replacement with Pedro Moose, a good replacement, but still, you know, Suhudo, the bigger personality, the more accomplishments. So none, none of the changes was improvement. And then you get the ultimate fighter season stuff thrown on there for, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if Connor's going to be in attendance and they're hoping for that, to, you know, being that he's, he loves Boston and everything. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't either. You make a good point about some of the fights that we've lost here. Uh, Marlon Vera versus Henry Cejudo. I, obviously, I mean, it's, it was a cool sounding bout to start with, but sure the UFC was probably banking on some potential for chaos there because you could totally see if he won, especially Cejudo making some noise at whoever won the Bantamweight title fight at the, at the end of the night, whether it was Sterling who just beat him by split decision in their last fight or O'Malley and the UFC would have been drooling over an O'Malley Cejudo title fight just for the, the oh, talk yeah. that would have led up to it. So uh, that's a blow on a competitive I think as well as promotional level, but Hey, we're stuck with the card we have. Uh, and we're definitely going to dig into all 10 of these fights one by one, but just some general thoughts on the Bantamweight final, whether it ends up being Katona versus Gibson or Katona versus uh, Rico Disculo. I, I mean, Brad Katona, I think is a better fighter than the end of his UFC run made him look. And the fact that he rattled off four straight wins in brave CF afterwards, uh, certainly would seem to bolster that. But the other semifinal, we're talking about two guys in Gibson and Disculo. Uh, Disculo's 36 already and has never really plied his trade in a high-level promotion. Gibson is going to be 36 in a couple weeks, and he exited the UFC on a one-and-three run that I think did reflect about how good a fighter he is. So, I mean, whoever wins that, I expect Katona's going to be a big favorite against him, but... I mean, even if Katona dusts whoever it is, I, it's hard for me to think of him as more than a good story. It just takes so much to make a splash at 135. Yeah, um, you're forgetting something, though. The Shulo's from Southie, you know? He's from the Boston. I, I don't I don't know if he's really from Southie. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, it, it would be better for the UFC if he is the one who wins and he's, sure. you know, in his home town making his debut, you know, gets, gets that fight a little bit more exciting for the crowd. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, you talked about Henry Cejudo, if he, if he won and, and, you know, the backs, back issues with Sterling and they, they had a great fight. And then obviously with O'Malley and they've kind of squared up. Don't forget there's some history between Marlon Vera and O'Malley too. If that, if that fight was the surface too. So this, you know, Absolutely. Like, so, uh, yeah, that was a big that was a big uh, hurt. Overall, the card, the main event's interesting. You know, whether sure. you, I know there's a lot of people that are, are strong on one side or the other, but it's still some some big you know big personality O'Malley, like kind of a disrespected champion for years, who's really been doubted his whole career and continues to find victories, whether it's controversial, whether it's close, whatever, but still keeps winning and, and chugging along and. So, the main event to me carries some weight. I give this card like a C plus. I, I'd say, I might even just give it a straight C as it okay. is right now. I mean, 
I don't. It's not just that I'm not interested. I actively don't want to see Chris Weidman back from like two and a half years away oh, on same. the pay-per-view main card. Uh, you know, just that that's that's about it. There's a couple of interesting uh, prospects on the undercard. Both Silva's Natalia and Karini Silva are really interesting. Andre Petrosky, I mean, I wasn't that high on him, but as long as he keeps proving me wrong, I'm going to keep uh, tuning in. But yeah, I mean, I, again, this card is what it is. Like, it, it's not outlandishly bad enough to just shit all over it's not great enough to get all up its arms about so yeah it sounds like a c or a c plus to me you ready to dig into these prelims yeah let's do it at least as the card is set up as of the beginning of fight week the first fight on the prelims is a flyweight matchup between marina morose and karini silva Morose, the 31-year-old Ukrainian, is 11 and 4 overall. She is 7 and 4 in the UFC. Uh, she's coming in off of a loss. She last fought back in November at UFC Fight Night Zechiku versus Kudalaba, where she dropped a unanimous decision to Jennifer Maya. Prior to that, she had been on a three-fight win streak that had uh, propelled her into the outer edges of the rankings. So she'll be looking to reclaim some momentum at the expense of Silva who has uh, all the momentum you could possibly want. 29-year-old Brazilian is 16-4 and overall. She is 2-0 and since joining the UFC out of the sorry the fifth season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, she is 2-0 and in the UFC with two first-round submissions uh, of Poliana Botelho and Caitlin Souza. The more recent of those, the Souza fight was at UFC on ESPN, Car of France versus Albazi back in June. So she'll be looking to make it three in a row. Odds here do uh, slightly favor Silva. She's minus 165 or so, Moreau's plus 140. Uh, the interesting thing about this one, Keith, is of course that both these women have fought already. Uh, this is a rematch of their clash about eight years ago, which is saying something considering they're only 29 and 32 respectively. It was very early in both of their careers, but they fought back in 2014, I believe it was, and Moreau's armbarred Silva pretty easily. Uh, obviously, any rematch of two fighters that's eight years ago is going to be of limited value in predicting how a fight between them looks today. Uh, I mean, think of when people like Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman rematched or uh, Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori. And, you know, like you had to be very cautious in drawing too many conclusions from the first time they fought. Uh, here, I think it's even more so. But I understand why Silva is a favorite here, even though Moreau's handled her the first time out, because Moreau's to me, seems just like a refined and more physically mature version of that fighter. Whereas uh, Silva seems substantially better. Uh, Silva, even now, and it feels strange to say, considering that she actually has more career fights than Moreau's, but Silva still has a little bit of a green prospect feel to me. Whereas Moreau's has felt kind of like a finished product, even since she debuted in the UFC by arm barring uh, Joanne Wood. But especially at the time they first fought, and that first fight between them is it's available, uh, you know, on YouTube. Silva felt super, super raw. She, I mean, I can't remember how many fights she had at that time, but she seemed like a scrappy athlete still learning to fight. The things that Moroz is good at, she's been good at all along, and the things that have hampered her, I'm not sure that they're really fixable. Like 
She's not a great athlete. Like she's long, long limbed, strong, like powerfully built either for straw weight or fly weight. But yeah, like not terribly uh, fast. I think she's a little defensively porous on the feet. Uh, she's a very good submission artist who's a bit of an armbar specialist. And that was plenty to take care of Karini Silva in 2014. But here, I, I think for Moroz to win, Silva would have to make a mistake. And that's possible, but it's not what I'm leaning towards. In the intervening time, Silva has become a really, really dangerous fighter on the ground herself, as evidenced by her three straight submission wins between the contender series and her first two UFC fights. I see this as being the kind of fight where Moroz doesn't really have a safe place to be. Uh, on the feet, I think Silva is probably going to tag her up. I think she has better uh, one-shot power. I think she actually might throw a better diversity of strikes. And if it goes to the ground, I don't think she's just going to blunder into an armbar or or get an armbar set up on her by Moroz. I think Silva will be the more active one. I think uh, she could sweep Moroz or threaten submissions from the bottom. I think if she ends up on top, I think she'll be steer she'll be able to steer clear of Moroz's offense and probably just beat her up from top position, maybe work for a submission later. But I do think this uh, this rematch very much favors Silva. I think she's going to be able to highlight the improvements in her game in the past eight years. Uh, give me Silva here. I'm going to say she gets a second round submission, but a second round uh, stoppage by ground and pound, I mean, would be effectively the same thing. I think it's going to be one of those things where she just has Moroz in a bad situation on the ground and Moroz has to choose her own poison. Yeah, this is uh, – I totally agree with what you said about the first match. Like, don't even bother watching it. It's, it's completely irrelevant. Um, Moroz, she's – yeah, I agree. She's she's definitely like a veteran of these two, even though Silva has more fights. Just the feel, you know, Moroz has been in the UFC for a long time. She's she's a kickboxer with some pretty good high output, works behind a jab. Uh, I like that she targets the body. But I've said this before, she lacks power. And that's because she throws a lot of arm punches. She has a lot of defensive flow. She backs straight up on the center line. She lacks head movement. I, I do like her calf kicks. And, and she's actually one of the few fighters that checks leg kicks, which is surprising je in general being that, you know, she's considered a kind of a fighter with a lot of defensive flows, as you said, so, you know, in the boxing realm. So that that's pretty impressive. Uh, she, she, she has a good chin. I mean, she's been in some firefights. I mean, I go back to like the – Myra Bueno Silva, that's a fight that obviously aged well. And, she, you know, she she ate some big shots from her and, and didn't crumble, though she was hurt to the body by Silva. Uh, she can battle in the clinch a little bit. I, I agree with you. I think she's a better wrestler than she gets credit for. I think that's the best part of her game. Uh, she's one of the ones she can shoot for takedown. And she'll just catch a kick and get it there. Uh, pretty solid takedown defense. Good on top. So landed some good ground and pound against uh, Bueno Silva. And, and good cardio. Now, Kareem Silva, she, she's a boxer with pretty fast hands, throws straight shots down the pipe, attacks with combinations, throws a lot of kicks. I like her teep kick. Uh, I think she's got a very good high kick. She's I, I put her as a decent wrestler. She chains takedowns together pretty well. Uh, I like her, her body lock takedowns, has a slick ground game overall, um, quick back take. She has eight submission wins. Uh, she can kind of get subs off her back. Go back to like the contender series fight. She almost got a go-go plot in that fight. But one concern I do have in this fight is she plays BJ a little bit too much. So if she's on bottom, that could be the avenue of victory for Moros to kind of just win a wrestling match. Um, I think I'm a little higher on both these fighters than you. Like I, I'd say I'm low-key like both of them. Not 
contenders or anything like that, especially talking about Morose, not in that sense. But uh, I think she might be slightly better than um, than we think when we think about people in the division. Uh, I, I think it's pretty even on the feet, but I, ironically that Morose won on the ground last time, and I think I'm leaning Silver on the ground now. So I think she can get some back takes. I think her wrestling might be you know a little bit better than Morose. Uh, I think Moroz won't get subbed, but she'll lose the majority of the grappling. Give me silver by decision. Next up on the UFC 292 prelims is another women's flyweight matchup. This time, Andrea Lee facing Natalia Silva. Lee, the 34-year-old Louisiana native, is 13-7 and overall. She is 5-5 five and five since joining the UFC out of uh, promotions such as LFA and Invicta. She's on a two-fight losing streak right now. Uh, she's dropped back-to-back decisions to Viviani Araujo and Macy Barber. Prior to that, she had uh, back-to-back stoppage wins over Antonina Shevchenko and Cynthia Calvillo. So she'll be looking to get back on track here against Silva. 26-year-old Brazilian is 15-5-1 overall. She is 3-0 in the UFC since joining uh, out of Jungle Fight. She last fought back in May, uh, punching out Victoria Leonardo in the first round. Uh, So she'll be looking to make it four in a row here, establish herself as a rising contender in this division. And she is one of the biggest favorites on the card to get it done. Silva is out there around minus 360, Lee plus 260 uh, on the comeback. Keith, I know that Natalia Silva keeps on winning, but I don't know that I'm learning much about her because opposite of how it usually goes in most promotions, she's fighting lower level competition every every time out. She's gone from Jasmine Yazdavisius to Teresa Bleda to Victoria Leonardo. Like, it, it's... <laughs> uh, Bleda and Leonardo might not be down in competition, but definitely from Yazdavisius. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Uh, here... I mean, Lee, if nothing else, is very, like, I mean, she's very well established in the division. She's, this is her 11th fight at flyweight. She's fought just about everybody that you can, short of, you know, making it into the title picture. Uh, Who gets it done here and how? I I mean, the lines seem to imply that betters are buying in big on Silva as a future contender, or they've really given up on Lee. Uh, How do you see this one? Yeah, um... Lee's, I mean, this is tough of competition, so I, I'm surprised that the line is that big. Uh, um, oh, hold on a second. I mean, we're talking about Angela. I got, I got to at least give her the respect she deserves. Hold on. All right. And that's very appropriate since she wears a cowboy hat yeah. like pretty frequently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> God, this thing is terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, Lee, she's. She's a distant striker with a, a pretty good volume. She throws a lot of straight punches down the pipe. She wants to keep her distance in the strike realm as she she hates being pressured. I mean, go back to the Macy Barber fight. She really hated the pressure of Macy Barber. Her jab was on point against Cynthia Calvillo. Um, <laughs> you can say that about a lot of fighters, though, against Cynthia Calvillo. Uh, she's, she's never been much of a power puncher, but in fantasy, she did drop Vivian Araujo who's a, you know, a pretty good fighter herself in their fight. She has a good kicking game, nice teep kicks, solid body kicks. Um, it's funny because we, you know, you categorize Andrew Lee as a striker. You know, that's what they'll call her, uh, you know, kickboxer. And a, she, I think she might be better 
like wrestler. She's an underrated wrestler. She's got takedown seven out of her ten UFC fights. Uh, she's pretty good at winning scrambles. Though in her fantasy, it, she's a good offensive wrestler. But she really needs to improve her own takedown defense. She's actually been taken down in nine out of her ten UFC fights. So, and she needs to improve her top control when she's on top. Um, you know, she can wrestle, but she's not like a, you know much of a submission threat or really a threat in general. She's more like a round winner on top. And then if she's taken down, she really struggles to get back to her feet. Now, um, like that's it for her. Got our mind everywhere that we're still in Beantown. Um, uh, Natalia Silva, she's she's a really good prospect. Uh, she's a good athlete, good footwork. She can fight out of both stances, good volume. Uh, she's pretty technical for a striker. She sets up her shots well with feints. Uh, fast hands, accurate. I really like her check left hook. Uh, I like that she follows up with big combinations. Uh, she she'll entertain the crowd with like some spinning attacks, which you know I'm not crazy about. But she's coming into a power. I mean, we saw that in her fight against Victoria Leonardo, and uh, you know, win by knockout. Uh, I like her kicking game, fast kicks, beautiful high kick. Uh, she she can throw the high kick from both stances. She needs to fix some of her defensive holes to be elite. One, she keeps her chin too high in the air uh, is the biggest concern. Solid wrestler. Um, usually you know, try to catch a kick to get it there. Uh, though I do like when she closes distance. She can hit some upper body takedowns. Uh, good throws. She shows some really good takedown defense against Jasmine Jasevicius, which is really turned into a very solid win. Uh, she hit her with a wizard kick. Uh, if taken down, like Teresa Blade was able to get her down, which is surprising. She swept her. Good ground and pound on top. She she really has a good submission game, and uh, she showed that she can go hard for 15 minutes. This is a this is a huge step on the competition for Silva. Lee is a she's a crafty veteran. Um, I just think Silva's a better athlete. She's faster. I say she passes the test. I say she wins everywhere. Uh, Lee is tough, so I don't think she'll finish her. But give me Silva by decision. Yeah, I'm with you on basically every point here. Lee just, she was always going to have tough sledding at the UFC level because uh, desp- despite how she looks, and I mean, she looks like she should be an elite athlete. Like she really isn't like, she's not that fast. You know, she is very strong and she's, you know, got like good size, you know, good build for the division, but uh, she's not blindingly fast. And I think that hampers her striking a little bit. Uh, you mentioned her, her kicking game is, you know, the best part of her striking defensively. She's always been hittable on the feet and it's really just kind of her toughness that's led her to have. Uh, how's the best way to put this? Like, if not for her being pretty damn tough and having good recoverability, she'd probably have multiple like knockout losses in, in the UFC right now. Cause just about everybody's been able to hit her when, when they want to. Uh, and offensively, you, you kind of said it like she's a, a surprisingly good offensive wrestler. You know, she's got a, a good kicking game and a, a pretty busy uh, striking game in general. This is low on power, which means she's kind of doomed to try to win decisions. And that puts her in a situation where she has to be perfect or near perfect or not make any big mistakes against women who are more offensively dynamic than her. And, you know, that's, that's just always going to be a tough look. I think it's going to cost her against Natalia Silva. Uh, Silva's faster hits harder while both of them have their, uh, 
their weaknesses and liabilities on the ground. Uh, I think if this fight goes to the ground, it's probably going to be on Silva's terms. And I think Silva's going to be able to hurt her on the, on the ground too. Uh, Lee's best uh, chances of victory here are either if just there's something about her kicking game that kind of freezes Silva and we get this weirdly trigger shy, like low volume uh, out fight on the feet, which would, I mean, that'd be a drag to watch, but that would be a way that Lee could win two rounds out of three. Or if we find out suddenly that Silva doesn't have much of a gas tank and Lee's able to take over late. But yeah, neither of those things is the main chance, which is why I think Silva's such a big favorite here. I agree with you that uh, uh, a stoppage by Silva, especially an emphatic stoppage like she's had in her last couple of fights, I don't think that's super likely. That would certainly be very impressive if she can pull it off. But Lee is a different kind of tough than uh, the women Silva's been fighting recently. So give me uh, Silva, like you said, to win all three rounds here pretty decisively. Uh, in her fight with Yazdavisius, like one kind of detail that kind of slides by is that she hurt Yazdavisius pretty badly in like the last 20 or 30 seconds of each of those three rounds where like, you know, if she had managed to do that earlier in the round, she might've gotten a stoppage. I could see that happening here where like Lee is saved by the bell in, in at least one round. We head now to the middleweight division for a matchup between Andre Petrosky and Gerald Mearshart. Petrosky, the 32-year-old Pennsylvania native, is 9-1 overall. He is 4-0 since joining the UFC out of the 29th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, four straight wins since uh, just about exactly two years ago. He fought most recently at UFC 281 last November, where he took a pretty one-sided unanimous decision over Wellington Terman. So he's going to look to make it five in a row, uh, probably enter the rankings at uh, at 185 pounds if he can manage to do so. And standing in his way will be Mearshart. 35-year-old Wisconsinite is 35 and 16 overall. He is 10 and 8 in the UFC. He is coming in off of a loss. Uh, he fought at UFC 287 back in April, where he got plunked in the first round by Joseph Pfeiffer. Prior to that, he had a win over uh, Bruno Silva last August. So Mearshart looking to get back on track. Petrosky looking to keep the momentum going. Petrosky is decidedly the favorite of the two. He is minus 260, Mearshart plus 210. Well, Keith, Andre Petrosky is a powerfully built, uh, relatively green fighter with a wrestling background uh, who... Uh, he certainly scans as, as a standout athlete who's kind of learning on the job. Normally, I would say that's like Gerald Mearshart eats that three meals a day, uh, but he's not favored to get it done here. Uh, is that an indication that Mearshart's fallen off, that Petrosky's the real deal, or do you disagree with the line? Um, give me the line again. Petrosky minus 260, Mearshart plus 210. Yeah, I think it should be slightly closer, maybe like negative 210. For Petrosky, like I'm not, I'm not surprised he's the, yeah. the favorite. I mean, he's he's jacked up a dude who's on a nice winning streak, and Mershat's always going to be overlooked. I mean, he's been overlooked his really his whole career. Um, you know, he's he's one of our guys. We we've always liked him. Yeah, but well, I mean, he falls in the Paul Craig type, you know, mold very much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he he's um, he isn't a great athlete. And he doesn't measure well. Like this was the NFL Combine. You know, <laughs> Petrowski is 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 your you know your first round. Mel Kuyper's talking about him. He can't miss. 
you know, middle linebacker, you know, Brian Erlacher type guy. And like Petrowski might be Mirror uh, looks like Mirror a punter. That's what I was gonna say. Marshall's a punter, or yeah, yeah, he's he's the guy who holds the wire for the head coach. It's like whatever that, whatever the hell that guy. Does. Like, how do you get that job? They just like you know the guy. Who, like as soon as the game ends, the head coach yeah. takes the headset off and just hands it to some guy. Yeah. Like what yeah. else does that guy do other than just walk around ready to get the headset? headset but you know what? Goes. That guy probably makes more than like half the UFC champs. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um. So, you know, Mirshad, he's you know the equipment manager. You know, not 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 a great athlete, but he he makes up for it with experience, and craftiness. He he's a southpaw with high volume. He's a builder. He gets stronger each fight. Not the best striker. I mean, his hand speed isn't good. Does does have good kicks though? Like he, I like his kicks to the body. Not a strong offensive wrestler, but can like do enough to create a scramble, get his hips moving and, and get the fight to the ground. Weak defensive wrestler. And, and he makes that even easier. We talked about this a million times with him. He'll jump guillotine. Now he'll hit it, <laughs> you know, but uh, sometimes he'll find himself on the bottom. Crafty submission threat. He can get subs off his back, but he has struggled to get off the bottom. He's taken a large amount of damage over the years. I mean, we've talked about him being 35, but he's a old 35. The bottom can drop out at any time, and I wonder after his last fight if we're starting to see that when he – I mean, he got smoked by Joe Pfeiffer. Uh, Petrowski, Southpaw, who is – I think, he, you, you know, you described him as a wrestler, and obviously, you know, a green wrestler, and obviously that, that fits. But, you know, he, he's becoming more of a complete fighter. He, he likes to fight at both stances. His, his striking, his boxing is, is tight, close. Has some power. I mean, we already talked about the guy like being a ripped up dude. He he needs to clean up his defense a little bit. He lacks head movement. Um, go back to like the Brian Battle, the uh, the Yazong Hugh. They both landed on him more than more than they should. Like I, I definitely think he'd do much better now. But at the end of the day, like yeah, he might have improved his striking. He's still a very like wrestle heavy guy. Uh, he's a explode through your hips kind of guy. Blast double. Uh, if not, he's grabbing a single and he's running the pipe. He's good at driving through the hips, and he's relentless to get the takedown too. Now he does a lot of these big moves, so that that's a little concerning to me because it kind of zaps his energy. But if he's on top, he's strong on top. Uh, you know, he likes to look to advanced position. Loves head attacks, head and arm choke, kind of like that wrestling special. Uh, he caught Nick Maximoff, who's known for his grappling himself with an anaconda choke. Now he is a wrestler, so he, he's not comfortable off his back. Uh, go, I go back again the while ago, and I probably need to take this out of my notes, but he gave up his back against Brian Battle on, on tough a couple years ago. Uh, and, and his you know, his sole loss was, was a submission loss. I, I'm i worried about Mershat. You know, that has me leading Petrowski. I have a gut feeling that Petrowski might even show us more skills with his hands, but Mershat's inability to stop takedowns just, just keeps me going back to the, you know, the obvious thing is just, you know, he's going to be on bottom against a stud wrestler like Petrowski. Petrowski's going to have to avoid, you know, subs while he's on top, you know, submissions from Mershaw from the bottom. And, and definitely got to, he's going to have to pace himself, conserve his energy. Uh, definitely does not want to get tired and have Mershaw coming on late in the fight. Uh, I, I think he does, though. I, I see Petrowski wins. Mershaw's so tough. So I think Mershaw might make it to the distance, but give me Petrowski by unanimous decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of what you are here. And, I, I kind of mentioned, I think, during the intro that I've been underestimating P- 
Petrosky and you know, he just keeps winning and I'm having to come around on him slowly. I think it probably all goes back to uh, his one pro loss, which was, uh, it was right before he was on tough and he got uh, knocked out by Aaron Jeffrey. And what I'm pretty sure was an LFA uh, title fight. It was at least the yeah. honor that way. I, I think I said he was submitted in his uh, loss. Yeah. I met, I met on the ultimate fighter show. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He was submitted in this, in, by battle in that semifinal. I, I figured that's what you meant as well. Uh, but against Jeffrey, he won the first round and he won it just like you would have expected him to at that phase of his career. Like he wrestled him big. You mentioned like big moves, you know, uh, he, he power wrestled Jeffrey, but got stuck on the feet for just a second too long in that second round. And Jeffrey just showed himself to be a better uh, striker, just caught Petrosky, hurt him bad and, and finished the thing. And so all through his run on tough and his, at least his first few fights in the UFC, I thought of him as a wrestler who's still learning to fight, but you're right in that he's, I mean, he's showing uh, development from fight to fight, which is good for a relatively late starter. We are talking about a 32 year old guy who's only in his 10th pro fight right now. And for a guy who's built like he is and likes to wrestle, it's encouraging that he's been to the third round in three of his four UFC fights. And I mean, he, obviously he's won all uh, of those fights and he's not appeared to be especially flagging. So we know that he can at least fight three rounds in a fight where he is controlling the action. Like we, we know that much, uh, which if that holds true, that closes off one of Mearshart's major avenues to victory. I, I mean, you alluded to the fact that Mearshart's game plan you know, all along has usually required him to take some punishment and outlast his opponent until they either get tired or make a mistake. Certainly Petrosky could make a mistake, but waiting for him to get tired uh, might not be, I mean, it might not be a valid route to victory. Uh, like you, I'm concerned for Mearshart. There's a difference between turning 35 when you're a fighter who's gotten by on being elusive and never getting solidly hit versus being like Mearshart and yeah, most of my wins involve me getting dinged up pretty bad in the first round, which is, I mean, that's been Mearshart, not just in his, what is it? 18 or 19 fights in the UFC. He's got over 50 career fights. And that was the case even on the regional level. Like that's always been Mearshart. He was, he was the worst athlete when he was fighting in, you know, uh, like, you know, ROC or, or, or CFFC or whatever. Like dude lost JLS. Oh, he's one and one against Jay Ellis. We need the trilogy fight. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Just <laughs> I always bring that out as my example to people that no, no, Jay Ellis is trying to win. He's just <laughs> not the, you know, he's not he's not Shannon Rich. He's not just like rolling over and tapping for the paycheck. Like Jay Ellis wants to win. He's just not good at it. Uh but yeah, here if Mearshart can survive the initial onslaught by Petrosky. I think the fight still favors Petrosky because I don't think he's going to get tired. He's shown himself pretty capable of taking himself, taking care of himself on the ground. Uh, I'm with you in that it's time maybe to at least put an asterisk by the notes about him losing to battle on, on tough. Cause one battle has turned out to be a pretty crafty and slick guy. And two Petrosky just doesn't seem to be the same fighter as that two years later. Uh, but Mearshart 
could always be put away in the first round by a guy who was fast enough, got on him fast enough, and hit hard enough. You know, to Ian Heinish, Pfeiffer, obviously. I think Petrovsky might be able to do that. Uh, I, my best case scenario here is that Mearshart manages to hold on for a decision loss where maybe he has Petrovsky in some trouble late and we we learn some things about Petrovsky, but I'm not sure it gets there, man. Uh, I, I think this is the fight maybe where we realize that the miles are starting to tell on Gerald Mearshart. Give me Petrovsky by first round TKO here. I, I think he's going to catch Mearshart with something and we're going to realize that that legendary recoverability, that legendary chin is, is starting to go. Uh, so yeah. Petrosky uh, by first round TKO in a moment that'll be sad for those of us who have been fans of Gerald the punter Mearshart for years now. Next up on the UFC 292 undercard is the lightweight final of season 31 of The Ultimate Fighter featuring a couple of former roster talents trying to make their way back into the UFC. It is Austin Hubbard and Kurt Hollibaugh. Hubbard, the 31-year-old Colorado native, is 15-6 and six overall. He went 3-4 and four during his first run in the UFC, which ended almost exactly two years ago uh, with a loss to Vince Pichel. He basically just alternated loss and win, losses and wins for seven fights before getting released. He won two uh, fights in various regional promotions in between, including a unanimous decision win over everybody's favorite banger, Julian Lane, and got an invitation to appear on uh, The Ultimate Fighter, where he won his way to the final with a uh, split decision win over Roosevelt Roberts. He will try to uh, get that second contract against Hollibaugh. 36-year-old Louisiana native is 19-7 and with one no contest. He is 0-4 in the UFC across two separate stints with the promotion. I mean, Kurt Hollibaugh is old enough and old school enough that he originally joined the UFC out of the Strike Force acquisition in like 2013. Uh, he fought once in the UFC, lost to Steve Seiler, got cut, went and fought uh, a bunch of different places, in, uh, including a lot of fights in Titan FC. He got called back to the UFC uh, through Dana White's Contender Series. The very first episode, in fact, uh, taking out... Southern New England's own Matt Bassett. Uh, that first round knockout was overturned when Holobaugh tested positive for a banned IV, but he got to keep the contract nonetheless. It didn't help much as the UFC maybe punished him for the infraction by, by making a fight. Honey Barcelos, Shane Burgos, and Tiago Moises in a row. Uh, he went 0-3 across those uh, three fights, got cut, uh, went and fought in a couple of regional promotions, but he had not fought since like May of 2021 when he got the call from, uh, from the ultimate fighter, but against all odds, he made it through and actually saved his most impressive performance for his semifinal as he blasted Jason Knight, uh, to earn his way into this final. So it all gets settled on Saturday. Hubbard is a moderate favorite. He's minus 170. Hollabaugh plus 145. Uh, Keith, I mean, I talk to you basically at least once a week, usually twice a week, every week. I know that you haven't really been following the Ultimate Fighter very closely as far as watching every episode as it comes out. Neither have I, but uh, I definitely revisited the fights over this uh, weekend to get ready for this. Uh, did you did you learn anything from watching the fights on Tough that made you feel differently about uh, about this fight? 
No, because if, if if I were to watch like low level fighters that got washed out of the UFC, I would just put on like bare knuckle boxing. You know? Ironically, Jason Knight could have been here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Um, I I watched a couple of the episodes. I I think I I, I was trying to follow the the season. I, I I watched the the first four episodes, and then like one day I I, I got missed it. And then it was like one of those on my to do list, and then never got to it. Then all of a sudden, it was like two episodes on my to do list. Then it was three episodes, and just <laughs> I just gave up. I, I just, <laughs> I mean, what are the signs that the UFC need to realize that just Ultimate Fighters show is dead now? I mean, when you put the biggest star in the history of the sport on, the ratings are low, the finale is on the prelims, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I mean, I know with the uh, Garbrandt fight getting canceled, maybe one fight gets to the main guy. Who knows? But but still, like you get my point. Yeah, like just too much of a good thing is is a waste, and it's been too much for about fifteen years now. Um, as far as this fight, I mean, Kurt Holbo is thirty six years old. Like, I, I, you know, I hate that. That said, he, he looked kind of good on the show. I, I mean, he's a, I mean, obviously he's in the finals, so his fight with Jason Knight was much different than Austin Hubbard's fight against Roosevelt Roberts. I mean, you couldn't ask for polar opposites. As as Hallibur Knight was a was a fantastic brawl, and Hubbard and Roberts was a terrible fight. Uh, Hallibur, he's a pocket boxer who's pretty aggressive, throws combinations, nice one-two down the pipe, nice pop in his strikes. He works the body well. Defensively, he he pillars, which I which I hate. He rolls with punches a little bit, which is which is better than pillaring. But he also keeps his chin high in there, which I don't like. He, he's willing to eat a shot to land some of his own. He was doing that against Jason Knight um, and getting the better of his changes. I like his I like his plum clinch. He can get in there. He's he's not much of an offense wrestler. He'll try to get the fight to the ground, but he has a submission threat. He's got nine subs on his record, and he's got you know just at the age where you think you'd see big decline at thirty six, he shows that he can still go pretty hard. Uh, Hubbard, he's he's a minus athlete. You know, he never looks comfortable to me out there, but he's fairly well rounded. I mean, he doesn't have ma- major holes. Uh, he's big for the weight class. He's, he's a little stiff. He tends to avoid strikes by backing up. His hands are are slow, but to his credit, they're short, tight shots. So there's there's no loading up, which gives him some pop. Like he he hurts guys and, and buckles guys with shots that they don't look like huge shots. Like if the guy didn't buckle, you wouldn't go, whoa, you know, ooh, you know. But that's because he just keeps everything tight and short. Uh, so, I, so I'd so i say he has, a, you know, a little bit of pop. His chin is a little high for my liking. Uh, I like his kicks down the middle. Uh, going back to like the Marco Matson fight when he was in the UFC, I like to step in knees in that one. Uh, he has some solid low kicks. He is heavy on his front foot, and, and which makes him open to leg kicks. Aaron McKenzie, who he beat in the opening round, had some success against him by kicking out his legs on the show. He He's an underrated wrestler. Uh, I mean, he out-wrestled Kyle properly in the UFC. He out-wrestled Aaron McKenzie, who was, was supposed to be the grappler of the two. Uh, good get-up game. I mean, go back to like the Mark Madsen, you know, who obviously is a decorated wrestler, struggled to get him down uh, and keep him down. And he showed some pretty good ground upon against Aaron McKenzie and tough. Uh, you know, despite not, you know, not getting super excited about you know these guys coming back to the UFC or anything like that, 
I'd say, I mean, you said the odds were, what was it? Uh, Hubbard was slightly a favorite. Yeah, Hubbard's minus one seventy or so on most of your books. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought it was. Oh, I thought it'd be even closer than that. Um, I was, that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's a pretty even fight. I think it's gonna be a be a slugfest because, you know, Hubbard's not gonna have the slow output fight like te- you know technical sparring match like he did against Roosevelt Roberts. You know, Holobar, if he fights against Fright Knight, fights against Jason Knight, he's gonna turn us into slugfest. He's gonna let his hands go. So I, I think we're gonna have some good exchanges with two guys with deceivingly uh, good punching power. I'm gonna I'm gonna go the upside of the betting lines. I'm gonna go with the upset. I'm gonna say that Kurt Holabar finally gets his first UFC win. Uh, I like the combos I saw in his last fight. I I say we have a back and forth fight, and I say Holabar wins by split decision. I like that pick. I the reason I kind of asked you off the the top, you know, if you saw anything on Tough that made you feel differently about this fight, is because I did, and it really was just their respective semifinals where Hubbard got kind of taken to the limit in a lousy fight by, by Roosevelt Roberts and Holabaugh won exactly the kind of fight that I, I figured he would lose against Knight. Like I, I figured that fight was going to be stylistic trouble for Holabaugh because Knight super underratedly tricky on the ground. If it goes there and on the feet, uh, maybe not quite as composed as Holabaugh, but good power. And obviously a guy that, did make quite a bit of noise in bare knuckle boxing during his uh, hiatus from the sport. Uh, I'm leaning Holabaugh as well here. I don't know how much of a lease on life this is going to buy him in the UFC. Again, we're talking about a 36 year old guy that used to fight at 145. Now probably will fight at 155, but Holabaugh may be the ultimate example of a guy who's better than his UFC record and better than his record in general makes him looks like he still doesn't really have any terrible losses. You know, he like, you know, on the, on the regionals, he's lost to people like Andre Harrison, who was like started his career, like 18 and 0. his first run yeah. in the UFC. He fought uh, Steve Seiler, who uh, that was when Seiler was like in the middle of that 13 fight win streak that, you know, uh, that like, made him like, like Thomas Brown yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then again, just that, second UFC run after the, the win over Bissette got uh, overturned honey Barcelos in 2018, Shane Burgos, Tiago Moises. Like that's, that's rough sledding. Uh, Holobot still seems to be a good fighter that just hasn't quite gotten the right opponent in the octagon yet. Maybe Hubbard will be that appoint, uh, that opponent. Uh, give me Holobot to win a really fun, slugfest here that takes place primarily on the feet but if it goes to the ground we'll have uh, some fun exchanges there he finally gets his hand raised uh well he's had his hand raised in the octagon before but well it got overturned uh he gets his first real win in the ufc and maybe these guys each pocket an extra 50k on top of it because i think this one should be a real barn burner yeah infinite but that that fight against beset that got overturned that was a contender series so i mean i guess it yeah. was technically in the octagon it, it, it is it, it is in the octagon yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I will say to add, and I know we got to move on. I spent too much time on this fight, anyways. Um, tough is weird because I, I try, and I, and you know, I can get sucked into this. Try to remember that, you know, that's not the best example of of the guy's skills because everything's so different. One, you know, that they, they don't have their coaches. Two, they have such a quick turnaround. Yeah. You're living with your opponent. It's it's just it's just a really weird dynamic. That's why sometimes 
So that's why a lot of times the guy who wins is not the best guy out of the season. A lot, no, that's a lot of times. I mean, you know better than I do because you write the whole articles. So you yeah. know better than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, that's a, a very fair point. I mean, and I want to say these guys were actually teammates and like had to split up ahead of their final. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, they did. So yeah, having to make weight three times in in eight weeks or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not always a great indicator of how these people are as fighters. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised by Holabaugh, so so hopefully that that holds uh, that holds over. Next up at UFC 292 is a middleweight matchup between Gregory Rodriguez and Dennis Tululin. Rodriguez, the 31-year-old Brazilian, is 13 and 5 overall. He is 4 and 2 since joining the UFC as a veteran of the 5th season of Dana White's Contender Series, though he was not signed immediately cuz he lost on that appearance. But uh yeah, since being in the UFC, 4 and 2, he's coming in off a loss. He got plunked late in the first round by Bruno Ferreira back at UFC 283 in January. So he's looking to get back on track and he's looking to do it against Tululin, uh, who is coming in off a loss as well. 35-year-old Russian is 10 and 7 with one no contest overall. He's 1 and 2 in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently at UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Spivak in February, where he got choked all the way to sleep by Jun Young Park. Uh, odds here favor Rodriguez heavily. He is minus 350, Tululin plus 270. I'm not picking Dennis uh, Tululin in this fight, but uh, I mean, anytime someone is as, is as big an underdog, I mean, anytime we're talking about like a three to one or bigger favorite, I do usually start out analysis by going, okay, if the underdog wins this, how does it look like, like what would have to happen? And Rodriguez has been hittable on the feet. He has been hurt on the feet by single hard shots by, by people like uh, Bruno Fajeda flatlined him, uh, his loss on the contender series, uh, Jordan Williams. I mean, he had to follow up, but it was one big shot that like really started the ball rolling. So, and even in his wins, you know, like some of his opponents have like kind of stood him up with, with a single strike and kind of forced him into plan B. Tululin as a kickboxer with good power, good reach, good fundamentals, he could do that. But that really is a remote possibility, I'm thinking. Uh, because as you know, as porous as Rodriguez's defense has been on the feet, it usually gets that way when he gets uh overeager. And the compensation on the other side is that offensively he's a nasty striker just because of his power and aggression. And then on top of that, a surprisingly good wrestler, I get more of a power wrestler than, you know, somebody who, who came up through a long amateur career and knows how to chain takedowns, but you know, it's been generally effective. Uh, and then good kind of strongman bully topside to submission type, uh, ground game. All of that just seems like poison for Tululin to me. Uh, I think Rodriguez probably could hang out on the feet and beat Tululin that way. But if he does, I think that puts him at unnecessary risk. You know, if he gets caught with one big punch from the Russian, that could turn this whole fight on a dime. If he hangs out too long and Tululin starts chopping at his legs, that could create problems. I expect Rodriguez will do the smart thing here uh, and try to take Tululin down within the first 90 seconds of this fight. I think he gets the takedown and from there, I haven't seen much that makes me think Tululin's getting back up. Uh, I 
think this is over in the first round. Give me Gregory Rodriguez by first round TKO ground and pound. Yeah, um, I mean, Gregory Rodriguez, man, it, it, every time he takes a step forward, it looks like he's you know, on his way to being a contender. He takes a step back. Um, I think it's kind of now, now it's the time for him. He, he, he better make the run now. Uh, he's he's a massive middleweight. He's, he's very aggressive on the feet. He's a pocket boxer with big, big power in both of his hands. He throws a lot of power hooks. The problem is he tends to load up and telegraph his shots, and he and you mentioned it, he lacks defense. He used to have a little bit of a granite chin, but I'm, I'm starting to worry about it. I mean, he was starched in his last fight. Now, he does well to close the distance and, and use his strength inside. Uh, as you mentioned, he's a better – I mean, even though he has power and he's some God-given tools, he's a good technical grappler, uh, you know, if he – Gets inside, upper body takedowns, trips, throws. Uh, he can shoot from the outside. Though sometimes, he, I've said this before, he kind of ducks his head and just shoots without setting things up. As you mentioned, he's more of like a power wrestler than a technical wrestler. Uh, but if he grabs the leg, uh, you know, he's so physically strong, especially early in the fight, it's probably going to go down. Uh, but strong grappler, very mean ground and pound. He's a legit submission threat. Uh, but he's one of these guys, he's, he'll rush things, you know, he'll lose position, try to get a submission. And due to that, like, phys- the physique and power of him, he, he tends to fade late, especially, you know, throwing big bombs and, and wrestling heavy. Cholulin, he's also a big middleweight. I mean, he's long and lengthy uh, on the feet. He's got some high volume, pressure striking, pretty quick hands, works behind a jab, good at sliding in the pocket and loading some power shots. But he can be dragged into a brawl, and he can get wild and throw a lot of haymakers. Now, he has decent power, um, especially when he goes to the body. Uh, I like his step and knees. And I like his kicks to the body. He's a he's a good wrestler. Uh, looks to advance position on the ground, but he's not a submission threat. He, he actually has been submitted in the past. In fact, he's I think it was last fight he was subbed by Jung Young Park. I think Tillulin is a little bit better than his. You know, when you watch him fight, you don't see these glaring holes. He's just missing something, and I I just I still think he's levels below Rodriguez. If if Rodriguez chin holds up and his cardio holds up, I think he wins fairly easily. Uh, I think he has the more power. I think he's the better athlete. I think he's better on the ground. Uh, so give me Rodriguez. I think he's going to hurt him on the feet, and I think he's actually going to catch a sub too. So I think we might have like a club and sub situation. I'll say Rodriguez by first round submission. Next up at UFC 292, uh, as the card is constituted as of the beginning of fight week, this is scheduled to be the top prelim, but considering that we've lost a main card fight, there's every possibility this gets bumped up to the main card. We'll see what happens, but it is a middleweight matchup between former champ Chris Weidman and uh, perennial fringe contender Brad Tavares. Weidman, the 39-year-old Long Island native, is 15-6 and six overall. He is 11 and six in the UFC. He is, of course, the former uh, UFC middleweight champ. He won the title back uh, almost exactly 10 years ago uh, with a second round knockout of Anderson Silva. He defended it uh, several times against Silva, Machida, Vitor Belfort before uh, surrendering it to Luke Rockhold. Uh, he last fought back in April of 2021 at UFC 261, where he lost in just 17 seconds to Uriah Hall by a gruesome lower leg 
break that was eerily similar to the one uh, Silva inflicted on himself in their rematch back in 2014. He's been out ever since then. He had planned on being back sooner, but uh, quite frankly, the recovery, the healing process did not go well. He ended up needing a second surgery to repair the tibia and fibula. It is finally now, uh, what is that, 28 months later that he enters the cage once again. And waiting to greet him is uh, Tavares. The 35-year-old Hawaiian is 19-8 and eight overall. He's 14-8 and eight since joining the UFC out of the 11th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he's on a two-fight losing streak. He uh, fought last July, dropping a unanimous decision to Drikus Duplessis, who has since thrust himself into the title picture at 185 pounds. And then he fought in April at UFC Fight Night, Pavlovich versus Blades, where he got knocked out in the first round by Bruno Silva. So Tavares definitely looking to uh, get some redemption here. He's lost four of six. Weidman has lost something like... Uh, six of his last eight and hasn't fought in over two years. So neither guy has a whole lot of momentum, but one guy has a lot more of the no momentum. And that would be Weidman. And he is a substantial underdog here. Tavares is minus 270, Weidman plus 220. I mean, Keith, Chris Weidman just turned 39 uh, a, you know, a month or two ago. He hasn't fought in over two years. He suffered what appeared to be a career-ending injury, or, I mean, nobody would have blamed him if it had been a career-ending injury against Uriah Hall. His only wins since dropping the title to Luke Rockhold way back in 2015 are over Kelvin Gastelum and Omari Akhmedov. I mean, yeah. Gastelum continues to be Kelvin Gastelum, and Omari Akhmedov walked out of the Aside from that, it's all losses. It's all knockout losses. And while it's been against a high level of competition, Weidman hasn't looked good in most of these fights. I mean, I ask myself, okay, you know, forget all that garbage. Like, don't don't think about that. Go back to the to the good days when Chris Weidman was on his way up, when he was blowing through people in you know like ROC, when he got to the UFC, when he won the title. What was Chris Weidman good at? Like, what made him good? Yeah, and it's that. He was, I mean, he wasn't the hugest middleweight, but he was an incredibly strong one. He was a good boxer. Like he just, he took to boxing really well. Uh, yeah. Just a, a, and very much like a boxer in MMA. Like he had the whole uh, BJ Penn or Rampage Jackson thing where he had a flat footed stance and, you know, kind of shuffled in and shuffled out, held his hands like a boxer with all the benefits and liabilities that that, implied an elite wrestler you know he was a uh he was a good wrestler in college at Hofstra and it translated to MMA and then some like in, in his prime he was an outstanding takeout artist or takedown artist and perhaps most importantly he is one of those wrestlers to whom grappling came just very instantly very instinctively like when he was I, I don't even think he was in the UFC yet or he might have just been freshly signed you know when he went to Abu Dhabi and he's taking on people like Andre Galvao and Vinny Magalhaes and yeah he lost to those guys but it didn't look like he didn't belong in the gym with them he just instantly slotted in as someone who could at least hang with the best grapplers on the planet um and then on top of that just at least on his way up he was incredibly tough What's he got left now? I mean, 
he may still be a good boxer, but he can't afford to do it anymore because his chin and his recoverability are gone against anybody with power. I mean, there, there have been a couple of fights where he was doing well until he got caught by one big shot. And then it was all over like the Jacare fight, the Musasi fight, uh, the Romero fight, like, and those fights are like four or five, six years ago. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I can't imagine his chin's gotten better since then. Uh, I don't know how his wrestling looks now. I, so I'm picturing a, a, a Weidman who it might be like the Tony Ferguson thing where like he looks competitive until the first adversity comes his way and then just all the wheels <laughs> fall off the wagon. And he's facing someone in Tavares where I'm starting to get the first sneaking suspicion that Tavares is on the downslide. Like for it, it seems like forever. It's literally been over a decade that he was going to be that was a guy that was always going to win three, lose one, win three, lose one. So he could never really make it into the title picture, but he'd never really fall much below like that 15 spot. Like he was the ultimate gatekeeper to the the middleweight top 10, but he got hurt real bad by by Bruno Silva. Um, Edmund Shabazi. I mean, Edmund Shabazian was kind of lightning in a bottle at the time they fought, but. Tavares' durability is starting to wane as well. And Drickus Duplessis just kind of beat him at the Brad Tavares game. Like, Duplessis was kind of the bigger, stronger guy when they got their hands on each other. Uh, he seemed to make Tavares a little bit gun-shy on the feet. So Tavares doesn't have left what, what he used to anymore either. But I, I understand why the line is what it is, because I still think it's going to be way too much for Weidman. I can't imagine Weidman just coming out and shooting a beautiful double leg and taking Tavares down. And I think if this turns into a striking match on the feet, Weidman's never been good about checking leg kicks. Uh, I mean, it sounds mean. It sounds like some like Cobra Kai shit, but like if I'm Tavares, I'm starting to kick the legs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, and if Weidman is distracted by that at all, if he's worried about uh, that leg at all, that just opens him up for maybe just the one big punch it takes to start everything rolling downhill. Like Tavares is, he has underrated power. Like his stoppages on the feet are usually due to an accumulation of damage. But I mean, his, his flush punches have made everybody kind of sit up and pay attention. Uh, I think Tavares probably bust Weidman up pretty badly here. It's not much fun to watch, but give me Tavares by second round TKO here. And it'll be after a first round where just nothing Weidman really tries seems to work very well. And the writing is kind of on the wall already. Yeah, you talk about you know kicking his leg. Imagine what if he fought John Jones, like what he would do to like, you know? Oh, like Jones would like get the get the leg and then slow motion. You see him like bring up the elbow, like ah, yeah. like that like that thing from Bloodsport where uh you know uh John Claude Van Damme's buddy gets yeah. killed. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I just picture like when they the WWF wrestler puts the uh, the foot in inside the chair, so now that stops on the chair yeah. with the ankle in between. Um, so I was thinking about this fight and, and how to break it down and how to do a tape, you know, tape study of Wyman. And I'm like, wait a minute. I did a tape study of Wyman two and a half years ago and the fight lasted 70 seconds. Like, what did I really learn? So I figured I'm just going to read my same notes and say, like, what the F? Like, who, who the only people who knows what he's going to look like is the people in the gym with him, you know? Um, and even that, them, I don't think they can be completely you know, no, because, you know, fighting the gym is different than fighting a, you know, a UFC fighter trying to kill you. 
so Wyden before, he, you know, he was pretty light on his feet. Uh, obviously, that was before a massive leg injury. Oh, you know what? Let me say something real quick. I don't know if you remember this. I'm asking you to go back a long time, but, you know, MMA Twitter can be – I generally have good interactions, but, of course, there's some terrible humans out there, um, especially behind the keyboards. Do you remember the amount of people that was, like, really happy when Chris Wyman broke his leg because, you know, he checked the kick against Anderson Silva that broke Anderson Silva's leg, and maybe you were an Anderson Silva fan or whatever the reason is. Like, somehow, when Wyman broke – Anderson Silva's like it was like, like he was so happy about it or some, some you know like it was there was some kind of what's the word I'm looking for like evil intent you know that he really wanted him to put him on the shelf for that long and this was karma and everything like if you believe that you're a dickhead yeah, yeah you know like I mean? you're you're stu- you're stupid and you're mean spirited and that's a yeah. terrible combination like I remember Uri Hall's reaction is exactly how Edward's reaction should be. Like, yeah, obviously, you know, it's always good to win, but that's not how you want to win. Right. And and, and no fault to his fault. You know, no fault to him. But No, he either. did exactly what he was supposed to do. I, it's a freak, I, ha- freak thing that happens. Yeah, and I know I, people I, could wait at me and say there's a technique. Yeah, I understand that. But you know, generally speaking, when someone throws a kick, that doesn't happen. Right. But guy, okay, what are you going to say? No, just that. And I'm even willing to to kind of look past what a fighter does in like the five seconds after something like, like that. Exactly. All the adrenaline is going through your body. You know, I've seen people like just, you know, jump up on the fence and then realize, Oh shit, this dude's really hurt bad. Yeah. And then the somber mood takes over. I pay more attention to what, you know, they're doing a minute later, five minutes later at the post fight. Yeah. 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 And dude, Uriah Hall is simultaneously the kindest, gentlest, and most terrifying human on the planet. Yeah. Like, if, if, if Uriah Hall was out there intent wanting to break people's bones, there'd be a lot more people with broken bones. Yeah, no shit. So, I, I mean, just, just something I thought of what we were talking about. So, you know, what what does Chris Wyman still do good two, two and a half years ago, whatever it was? Yeah, he still had – he never he didn't get outpointed because of volume. Like, his volume didn't fade. You know, he worked behind a jab, uh, though he – you know, his hand speed definitely lost – some, some speed, though he was never the fastest puncher to begin with, uh, but he was a tight boxer um, that kind of rolled with punches well and, and, and had a good intelligent game plan. He could still wrestle uh, good entries, uh, like to get up in body locks and get the takedowns there. One of the, you know, when you look at a guy with a resume in wrestling, not the most credentialed wrestler, you know, when you think about the all the guys from NCAA who came over, but one of the guys who had, who adapted his wrestling to MMA so well. I mean, he's a good grappler. I mean, heavy on top, advancing on the ground, you know, a submission threat. He used to love attacking, like, head, you know, I always like to call the head attack subs, you know, front headlock game, has serious submission. But we talk about this injury and this broken leg, but don't forget, he had, like, a slew of injuries before that. He was always injured. Oh, yeah. He, I know? mean, he's had neck fusion surgery before yeah. he broke his leg. Like, the dude still has, like, a Frankenstein scar on the back of his neck. Yeah. Yeah. And then the one thing, you know, you say about him, you just worried. I thought his chin was going two and a half years. I agree with you saying, like, I don't expect his chin to get better. Now, move on to Brad Tavares. He's a good boxer. He's pretty technical. He uses feints well. Uh, strong kind of slip and rip guy. I'd say stinging power, but it was never the biggest hitter. Uh, 
which is surprising because he has him. He's built well, and he does have good like foot positioning. Now, yeah, and a good base underneath him when he throws. He likes to work from the outside, but he he can also slide in the pocket and throw down. He makes a mistake of backing straight up and 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 playing his back against the cage, which showed against Duplessis uh, instead of circling away. He's got an underrated kicking game. Uh, I like his kicks to the body. I like his calf kick. He can wrestle, but he doesn't wrestle much. Uh, it's more opportunistic or you know, a strategy like winning rounds by sneaking a takedown in late. Though I doubt he tries to wrestle Chris Wyman. I mean, that'd be a wrestling match would be the best case scenario for Chris Wyman. Um, though I do wonder how how much Chris Wyman can wrestle at this point. Like we've talked about this ad nauseum that why does so many wrestlers stop wrestling late in their career? Because it's really hard thing to do, you know? Uh, but he, you know, Tavares always had a pretty good take them defense. You know, we talk about his wrestling. He's more of a, like a sprawl brawl kind of guy. Uh, you know, I go back to like Antonio Carlos Jr. And Mario Akhmada fight. He beat those guys in back to back fights. No, this, you know, this is probably like three years ago or something like that. But that was, you know, showing he was able to, to sprawl and brawl against guys with, you know, grappling backgrounds, guys who want to get to the ground. But I'm with you, and I've said this before about Brad Tavares. My biggest issue with him is I think his chin is fading. Uh, I mean, he was knocked out in his last fight. He's been hurt in other fights. So Tavares is probably the highest level fighter that Wyman might be able to beat now. And if that's the if that is if he's equal to what he was two and a half years ago, especially if Tavares' durability is gone. I want Weidman to win. And there's nothing against Brad Tavares. I mean, it was the other way around, and Brad Tavares was coming back from you know this crazy break. I'd probably say the same thing. I just I can't trust a comeback run from a 39-year-old coming off major injury plus tons of other injuries in a two and six run over his last eight. I think Tavares picks him apart from range. I think he stuffs some takedowns and I think he finishes them. You said second round. I thought about going late, but I don't think it even goes late. I think Tavares might do it in the very first round. Give it Tavares my first round, TKO. Next up at UFC 292, and uh, we're fairly certain this is on the main card, uh, is Marlon Vera versus Pedro Munoz in a Bantamweight scrap. Vera, the 30-year-old Ecuadorian, is 28-1 uh, and one. overall. He is 14-7. and seven in the UFC. He's coming into this fight off of a loss. Uh, he most recently fought in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 43 against Corey Sandhagen back in March, uh, dropped the split decision. Prior to that, he had been on a four fight win streak that got him into the Sandhagen fight, which was effectively a, you know, a probable title eliminator. He's going to try to reclaim some of that momentum. Uh, underscore that he still is a factor in this division. He had been scheduled to take on former two-division champ Henry Cejudo, but uh, Cejudo dropped out in July, and in comes Pedro Munoz. Uh, Cejudo dropped out all the way, like, 4th of July weekend, so Munoz has had close to a full camp here, but uh, definitely not quite the name level of opponent that Vera was was hoping for. Nonetheless, uh, Munoz, 36-year-old Brazilian, is 20 and 7 with two no contests overall. He is 10 and 7 with two no contests in the UFC and he actually won his last time out. He appeared to be in one of the uglier tailspins 
in the UFC over the last couple of years. But uh, he fought at UFC on ESPN Holloway versus Allen back in April, took a unanimous decision over Chris Gutierrez, and uh, that allowed him to put a run of only one win in his last six fights in the rear view. Uh, Munoz would love nothing better than to rack up a second straight win, but he is not favored to do so. Vera is minus 185 as your favorite. Munoz plus 145 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, Marlon Vera wants to prove that he hasn't hit his ceiling, that he still is a factor in the title picture here. Munoz, I imagine, just wants to prove that he still can fight at the UFC level, that he's not completely washed. Uh, who gets it done here and how? Yeah, well, I mean, if he beats Marlon Vera, he won't just prove that he can fight at UFC level. He'll prove that he's still one of the upper echelon guys. Um, would be a hell of a feat at 36 years old. Um, Munoz, he's, you know, I am disappointed. So being there live, I'm, I'm disappointed not seeing a guy like Henry Sudo fight live. But I, I think this is probably the best replacement they could do at this at this point. Um Munoz is a high output fighter who's constantly moving forward, taking ground. Pace and output is his tool. Uh, he beats guys with his pressure, though he did lose to Jose Aldo because he refused to step on the gas, a fight that he could have won, uh, which is really just surprising. I mean, something that might have been a little bit of uh, the moment fighting. He was, you know, alleged. dude. I'll get to it when I talk about this, but I think he was starstruck. What'd yeah, that, that's that's what I was looking for. Yeah, he might have been a little starstruck, which I, which is because he fought so differently. Uh, he's got a, a sharp jab uh, that he works behind, that he's to slide in the pocket and unload some power shots. He's always been willing to eat, you know, a shot to land some of his own, and he he has a solid chin. He, you know, he's been in so many battles, and you know, he didn't go to like the ones that he didn't didn't go as well at all. You know, Aljamain Sterling was really teed off on him, but that's because he's. Even when he was probably in his prime, he, he always had some defensive. Number one thing is he kind of squares up a little bit, make himself a big target. Now, he's got nice pop. I, I love his kicking game. Hard kicks to the body. Some of the best calf kicks in the game. Though he doesn't check leg kicks. Um, Aljo really beat him up with leg kicks. He also, I was surprised how much he struggled with the speed of Dominic Cruz, um, the movement and speed. And that has to do with him being one of the the worst athletes in the top 15, you know, um, like sometimes you, you know, hard work and skill get you so far. You still have some God given uh, attributes, which I, I don't think he was given Now he's always been an underrated grappler, though. He doesn't wrestle enough though to his credit. He did show some wrestling against Chris Gutierrez, which is smart. Uh, Vera, on the other hand, you know, long lengthy Southpaw, he, he's a bit of a builder who gets strong as the fight goes on. But we just talked about, Pedro Munoz being starstruck. I don't think Marlon Vera was starstruck against Corey Sanhagen, uh, but he he didn't throw as much as he as he did, and suddenly it was like, oh crap, it's the last round, and I'm down. Let me kind of pick up the pace, and it was a little too late for him. Yeah, you know, he's usually the one who pressing the action, constantly moving forward, constantly coming off the cage. He has good power, but you go to the Dominic Cruz fight. He dropped Dominic Cruz three times in that fight. Has nice kicks. Uh, defense has always been an issue. Very hittable. Um, that's because he keeps his hands low. Uh, Sanhagen really was tearing him up with his boxing. Uh, he will wrestle a little bit, but definitely not a wrestler. And he's a weak defensive wrestler. 
but pretty good grappler. Uh, I mean, he's got some sweeps. He's got some submissions off his back, uh, some slick back takes. He has eight submissions in his career, and he's got some mean ground pound, and he has a mean streak to him. Like Marlon Vera, we've talked about this before. He comes up as this, like, you know, happy-go-lucky guy uh, before, like when he was on the Ultra Fighter and all that earlier in the UFC. Now he's like, like I, I want to murder people. <laughs> so, um, it, I got to go with Vera here. I, I, I think we'll have some good exchanges on the feet, especially from the kicking range with two really good kickers. But it's Vera's power that I trust more. Uh, I'm not sure about Munoz being a top guy anymore. So I say Vera not only wins, but I think Vera catches him. I say Vera knocks him out in the third round. Um, something that is be a hell of a feat to knock out a guy like Pe- Pedro Munoz, no matter what time of his career. I think Vera gets it. Vera by third round TKO. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more with that last observation. I mean, it is saying a lot that these two guys, Marlon Vera and Pedro Munoz, given how long they've been fighting at the highest level, the kind of guys they fought. I mean, they fought a, essentially a who's who of the best this division has to offer over the last, you know, eight years or so. And especially in Vera's case, how he fights aggressive face first, angry. It is shocking that neither of these guys has been stopped ever. Like that's, that's saying a lot. Like uh, the, I mean, Pedro Munoz even mired in a, a pretty bad losing streak there fighting some heavy hitters, just, you know, never, never finished. I mean, he always looked like he'd been hit with a chainsaw at the end of his fights, but, you know, like never finished. Vera, he, he's come against some of the hardest hitters the division has, again, face first, and he's always been able to trust his own uh, durability to carry the day. Uh, but if one of these guys is going to get finished, I think you've made the right call, and, I mean, the time might be might be right because, yeah, Munoz – Got that win over Gutierrez that almost certainly saved uh, his roster spot. You know, he was almost certainly going to get cut if he lost. And uh, he did it by fighting a little bit uncharacteristically for himself. I just don't know if that approach would work on Marlon Vera. And I know that Munoz's general approach from uh, all the way up to a couple years ago definitely won't. I I do think this uh, matchup favors Vera. He's bigger. He's, I mean, neither of them is a jump out of the gym athlete, but Vera is definitely uh, more of an athlete and closer to his prime. He's a much harder hitter. And he, like you said, he's a deceptively good ground fighter. Like he got to the UFC because of tough at like age 21 and has kind of learned how to fight with the lights on, but he's not that raw prospect anymore. And he's always been deceptively good on the ground. Uh, So, Munoz, I, I mean, he'll probably have his chances to take advantage of uh, Vera's aggression and defensive lapses on the feet, but Munoz isn't the kind of guy that's going to be able to make him pay in fight-changing ways, I don't think. And if it goes to the ground, Vera's, like, fast and nasty on the ground. He's equally happy setting up in top position and being methodical and hurting people while advancing position or, like, getting into a wild scramble and just trusting that he'll come out better for it this is a bad matchup for Munoz I think this is a a good fight for Barra I mean obviously would still be wishing he were fighting Henry Cejudo but it'll be a good fight for him to bounce back and show that he is making adjustments from fight to fight and at 30 he still hasn't peaked uh you called for Vera to get the TKO win which again would be Munoz's first stoppage loss of his career but 
I'm on board with that, actually. Uh, give me Vera by third round TKO, just an accumulation of damage, wearing down Munoz, and uh, finally maybe even just gets like the, the referee mercy stoppage. We head now to the welterweight division for a matchup between Neil Magny and Ian Gary. Magny, the 36-year-old uh, Chicago native fighting out of Colorado, is 28-10 and 10 overall. He's 21-9 and nine since joining the UFC out of the 16th season of The Ultimate Fighter. He is coming into this fight off of a win. Uh, he took a split decision over Phil Rowe at UFC on ABC Emmett versus Tapuria back in June. Uh, he's stepping up here on what will end up being about 10 or 11 days notice. Gary had been scheduled to fight Jeff Neal. Uh, Neal dropped out, and we went a couple of days while the UFC sort of uh, scrambled for a replacement opponent. Plenty of people on social media were clamoring for uh, Stephen Thompson to get the call since he very famously uh, refused to fight an overweight opponent just a week before that. But for whatever reason, that was not made, and uh, Magny stepped in. He'll attempt to be the first to hang a loss on the man who calls himself the future. 25-year-old Irishman is a perfect 12-0 overall. He's a perfect 5-0 since joining the UFC as a former multi-division Cage Warriors champ. He fought most recently in May, knocking out Danny Rodriguez in the first round with a head kick. Odds here, unsurprisingly, favor, Mag or favor Gary. He's the biggest favorite on the card, in fact. He is minus 425, Magni around plus 320. Uh Keith, obviously, what goes into preparing for a fight against Jeff Neal and what goes into preparing for a fight against Neil Magny are two yeah. very, very different, very different things. I mean, the threats they pose are, I mean, if it was a Venn diagram, it almost doesn't overlap at all. Like the ways Neil Magny beats people, the way Jeff Neal beats people don't really line up at all. Mm -hmm. uh, if the odds makers are to be believed, Magny's only real hope here lies in Ian Gary being unable to make those adjustments on, on short notice. Do you think there's anything to that? Do you think, I, I do you think we have the potential to learn anything about Gary here? Could this at least be the kind of win uh, where we see him face some adversity he hasn't faced before? Like, tell me how you think this one goes. Yeah. So I'm going to say this right now, you know, Magny's one of our guys. Magny shouldn't be that big of a underdog against anybody you know not not i understand that gary should be the favorite i, I mean get it he's the nice you know nice prospect the next big thing and all this but neil magny is still tricky magny was a much Mag, magny was less of an underdog than this to shout rachmanov yeah now in fairness i you know he had a full camp for rachmanov this is really short so i mean it's not it's like apples and oranges but my point is I get it, like the disrespect of Magni because he is what he is. But like, you should have seen Magni enough to know that he's tricky. You know, test that alone. You know, if you asked me to set the line, I still would have put Gary like negative two twenty or something like that. But negative four hundred or something—that's just that's craziness. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a Magni fan, so he won't beat the elite of the elite of the division, but he beats everyone else. Uh, now he isn't a guy that impresses you with his skill. But he just makes up with the volume. He turns up the volume when his opponent starts to fade. He's the fighter whose cardio is a tool and his best weapon. You know, I've said this before, he'll start off at a normal pace, but by the third round, he's almost in a full sprint. You know, 
I've, I've said this. I think his overall skills and speed are slowing. I mean, I think it's been three or four fights in a row now that I think I've seen, like, uh, you know, his skill uh, kind of decline. But his toughness, his, you know, um, mentality, his IQ, it, like, just ramps up even more, you know, as he has this unbelievable will to beat guys that he shouldn't beat. Now, there, like I said, he won't beat the elite of the elite because, you know, that can only take you so hard. But, I mean, go back to, like, the Danny Rodriguez fight where he just beat him with his mentality. Um, yeah, he's a long and lengthy fighter that can pop shot from range, Chris jab, uh, you know, very short. Like, you know, those, he fights from distance. He's, like, short, tight shots, not a lot of tells. I like his teeth kicks. I like his calf kicks. I love his stepping knees, uh, especially, you know, Getting inside with the, with his height, grabbing the, grabbing the back of the head and blasting away. Now he has some defense. Well, he pulls his head straight back. Uh, he, you know his head stays on the center line. Uh, I love when a, I've said this about Neil Magny many times. I probably could, can just say that I love when opponents getting punching range. He's smart enough to grab and, and initiate the clinch and, and work and use his size. He'll grind and clinch. He, he, he loves that position. Uh, battering his opponent with knees and elbows. He's also good at just like these little small things he does inside like he'll, he'll hit a slide by to get his back if he did to danny rodriguez he, um he did it uh what's his last fight he did it against uh, phil rowe mm-hmm. um he's a he's an underrated offensive wrestler uh, i mean he took down danny rodriguez a bunch of that fight uh, relentless with the mat returns but he has struggled with the elite grapplers uh michael cat you know prime michael cassia rda shafkar romanoff gilbert burns they've all taken him down and dominated on the ground and while Neil Magny, like, again, we just saw him recently. We always see Neil Magny recently. They have, like, long layoffs. But I am worried that one day it's just – it's a, finally, it's like, this could be the Jenga puzzle. Like, you keep pulling the pieces, and eventually it's going <laughs> to topple over. Um, <laughs> he's built that way, too. So, uh, you know, that could fall apart at all times. Um Ian Machado Gary is a huge welterweight, long and lengthy, very athletic, good footwork, moves well, very good striker. Uh, he's a builder who gets stronger every fight. Uh, his confidence seems to be building. Right? Like he, he has this utter massive belief in himself, which is incredible. Um, has a like He obviously gets compared to Conor McGregor because of the uh, Irish-Irish thing, but you know, they're both obviously was great skilled fighters when they come in different personalities but the confidence is there like the moment is not too big he really believes like this is his time uh very relaxed on the feet technical on the feet uh likes to work from range with his size but he's got quick hands he's accurate i like his stiff jab throws some good combinations slips and rips well i love that he batters the body good head movement he he needs to have good head movement because it kind of baits his opponents by keeping his hands low but what I love, and we've seen it recently, is, I mean, this guy, is he's young, but he's coming into his power now. Um, he's hurting guys. His stepping knees, you know, keep his opponents on the outside so they can't get inside. Great kicking game. Inside kicks, calf kicks, uh, high kick. I mean, we saw that in his last fight, Danny Rodriguez, incredible high kick. Yeah, he's got a judo background, so he'll occasionally look for a takedown. Uh, good, good top game, good ground and pound. 
he does attacks and missions like head attacks, star strokes, anaconda, stuff like that. Uh, and he's shown that he has cardio as, as the fight goes on. I was one of the guys so when Ian Gary first came to the UFC and was getting a lot of hype. I was I was kind of pumping my brakes on because I didn't really like what I saw on the regional scene. Like, you no, know, I definitely saw a UFC talent, but I didn't think I had a UFC champion. There were some things that he needed to clean up. But it just reminds me when guys are young, more more look for the athleticism and the raw tools because that other stuff will come. Uh, so I had this like bit of a wait and see approach with him, but that's not the case now. I'm all in on Ian Gary. Um, Beating Neil Magny is a hell of an accomplishment. It's one of those ones where it's a win on your record that probably won't get talked about as enough as it should be. But if you beat Neil Magny, you're elite. Um, You know, most people call that a gatekeeper. I hate using the word gatekeeper because there's so many different definitions for that. But, you know, beating Neil Magny makes you, you know, elite. I think Gary is elite. Uh, I'm going to go bold. I'm going to say this historic rise is going to continue. I would say he does something that very few people do to Neil Magny. And, and I think he, I think he hurts Neil Magny. I think he puts him out with strikes. I think he's going to hurt him, maybe drop him, and then finish up with follow-up strikes. Give me Gary by second round TKO. Yeah, I, I love the breakdown there. I also just instantly some like warning lights go off when I see that somebody is a greater than four to one favorite over Neil Magny. But you you really summed up well like what makes gary so promising and it's it's funny yes the mcgregor uh comparisons are going to be there but aside from not lacking for self confidence and being from ireland the i mean the the similarities kind of stop there like gary is a confident guy but he's not brash he's not the he's not yeah, that's fair. And, and he's it's, it's more Volkanovski where it's it's utter like self belief. Oh, that's a that's a fantastic comparison. It's much more like Volkanovski. Like Gary and Gary's at least at this point, he's like the last guy you would picture hearing about him being in like a you know a drunken brawl, like a coke fueled you know some weird coke fueled escapade. Stephen Thompson might be my last pick. Okay, but, uh, well, Gary, oh, maybe, maybe Robert, I mean, maybe Robert Whitaker. Things have been pretty quiet since <laughs> since since Thompson pulled out of that fight two weeks ago. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that right, the, right. the church right. bus is in a ditch off of I eighty in <laughs> yeah. Kansas right now. <laughs> I, all right, Fred, I'll still give it to Robert Whitaker, but Gary might be my second choice. No, I mean, Gary, and I I don't want to read too much into intangibles, but Gary's got stability. He's twenty five years old, and like he shares last names with his wife and she's clearly like an equal partner to him in kind of his professional en- en- endeavors. Like, and I think for the most part, while MMA does attract plenty of misfits and miscreants and like, you know, antisocial people, uh, generally speaking, just stability makes the, the training and fighting part of somebody's job easier. He's the kind of guy that, yeah, he's undefeated, but I don't see his psyche just crumbling and all the wheels falling off the, the wagon the first time he loses a fight. Like, because we've seen that. We, we've seen fighters that it was clearly really tough for them to adjust mentally after their first loss. You know, Ronda Rousey, Shane Carwin, uh, Macy Barber. Darren Till. Darren Till. Darren Till. Sure. Uh, Gary's going to lose a fight at some point. You know, I don't think he's going to retire 30-0. and 0, But you know what? I think he'll probably just, whenever that happens, 
whether it's this weekend or it's two years down the road in some title defense, uh, I think he'll probably just dust himself off and go back to the drawing board. Uh, I like that he's moved his training to to Killcliffe. I mean, just the fact that he's down there, if he's at Killcliffe, that means he's working on a weekly basis with like Gilbert Burns, Logan Storley, Robbie Lawler, like just a great group of kind of guys in his general size range to, to really like round out his skills. Uh, I agree with you that he's really just growing into his power. Like being the athlete he is and being like fundamentally sound as a striker, you knew the power was coming. And I think it's starting to show in his last couple fights. Just all that spells bad stuff for, for Magny because Magny is one of the ultimate guys that he has no bad losses, but he's lost badly. Cause you look over his, you know, his UFC career, he's lost nine times in the UFC. Like, the people he's lost to, none of them are bad, but all those losses were bad. Like the fights that went past the first round, like Ponzinibbio won every single round before knocking him out. The you know, like RDA and Rachmanov and Burns like dominated every moment of the fight on the ground until they tapped him out until they tapped him out. Uh because Magny's that ultimate well-rounded guy. Like, you know, in every category of MMA, he's a six or a seven. If you're better than a six or seven at at one of those. Uh, and you can force Magni into fighting on your terms. You can generally do do work on him. I see Gary being able to do that, and I actually see this being a fight where, aside from maybe in the clinch against the cage, there aren't many places where Magni's going to be able to hold his own for very long. Uh, I think Gary's going to hurt him if they hang out on the feet at distance for very long. Uh, I think if it goes to the ground, uh, Gary's going to be just stronger, faster. Yeah, yeah. It, it pains me to say this because, like, I've enjoyed following Magni for a long, long time now. But kind of like a couple people we've talked about on this card, I, I think this is where you know we're going to start to see that the wheels really have started to fall off. I feel like we said that about Gerald Mearshart, Brad Tavares. I think Magni at this point, with so many fights under his belt, uh, is entering that category as well, and he's entering a realm in terms of age and in terms of mileage where a short turnaround like this, a fast weight cut is, is probably going to tell on him as well. Uh, give me Gary to win this one. I'm going to say he gets it done in the second round. Uh, but if Magny's losses over the last few years are any indication, it's probably going to be all one-way traffic until then. I'm going to say Gary by second round TKO. The co-main event of UFC 292 is a strawweight title fight between defending champ Wei Li Zhang and the challenger Amanda Lemos. Zhang, the 34-year-old from China, is 23-3 overall. She is 7-2 in the UFC. She's on a two-fight win streak. Uh, she lost back-to-back -back fights in 2021 when she surrendered her title to Rose Namajunas and then uh, came up short in uh, their rematch. But since then, she has a second round knockout of Joanna Janjacek last June and last November, a second round submission of Carla Esparza, uh, thus becoming the uh, UFC strawweight champ for the second time. This will be the first defense of her newly rewon title. And uh, the challenger is Lemos. 36 year old Brazilian is 13, two and one overall. Like the champ, she is seven and two in the UFC, but uh, she's seven and one at strawweight. 
She made her debut six years ago against Leslie Smith. That was up at 135 pounds. That did not go well for her. But since then, uh, she is 7-1 and one in the strawweight division. Her only loss came uh, a little over a year ago to Jessica Andrade, who choked her out with a standing arm triangle choke in one of the best submissions of last year. But since then, she has back-to-back wins over Michelle Watterson Gomez and Marina Rodriguez. The most recent of those, the Rodriguez fight, was in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 214 last November. So Lemos wants to make it her third win in a row, obviously the biggest of her career, as she'll be fighting for gold. She is not favored to get it done here. Uh, Zhang is a minus 330 favorite, Lemos plus 240 as the underdog. Uh, Keith. Jeez. Yeah. Well, hey. Did uh, you say negative three thirty favorite? Yep. Zhang is minus three thirty. That's nuts. Well, that's I, I, wow. That's nuts. I mean, g- give it to me here. It, if Lemos pulls off what apparently, according to the odds makers, would be a shocker, what does it look like? Like, what are her most likely her, avenues to victory? She punches in the face really, really hard. Well, all right. <laughs> like that's what she does well, though. <laughs> um, I mean, if you had me guessing the odds, I, I knew Whaley was going to be the favorite. I would have guessed like negative 160. Like, Amanda Lemos is good. That's why I, I'm, I'm, wow, just surprised by that. Really, really surprised. I mean, I know I understand there's more to betting than just, you know, how, what's the chance of winning? I know some of that has to do with how to get people to bet, but I'm just I'm very surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, tell me how you think this one actually plays out. Uh, yeah. So, so, so before we talk about it, this is a fight. They're fighting for the title. You know, is anybody talking about this fight? No. There's no buzz on this fight at all. And I, I know, it, you know, maybe in China there, there might be a lot of buzz, or maybe in part some parts of Brazil. Even though I'd, I'd be surprised in Brazil because they've had so many stars, but I'm sure it's popular in China. But that said, I, I get it. You have two fighters. That, that you know, that American, and they don't speak English. Um, I know Whaley speaks a little bit of English, and um, and I, I mentally says she doesn't speak any English, correct? Uh, I mean, I've never heard her really try. Okay, I, 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 if, I apologize if, if I'm being um, what's the word I'm looking at? Being, uh, I don't know, just being dumb, and maybe she does speak English, but my point is like. No, it's not like Pedro Munoz where, where when he talks, you're like, oh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, are, I, are, I, I, I apologize if that's the case. I just No, I no, no. Like, Pedro Munoz speaks better English than I do. Yeah. Like, no, but I, I've never even heard Lemos try. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so, I get it. You know, they don't connect with, you know, the casual fans. You know, my my friends messaging me this week, they'll mess with me about, I mean, they already have Sterling and O'Malley. As it gets closer Thursday, Friday, they'll, they'll ask me more about that. Uh, I don't think I'll get many questions about this fight, but uh, on paper, it might be the better fight uh, for the title fights. You know, it's well, apparently not according to the betting. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because I don't know what the Sterling O'Malley betting line is yet, but um, I'm going to guess it's not this big. I, I'm, I'll wait I'll wait in anticipation to, to see what you say, but uh, Whaley Zhang, she's 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 very well-rounded. She she moves well. She has good volume. She throws mean combinations. When she gets in the pocket, she unloads huge shots. I mean, she's one of the pound-for-pound hardest hitters in women's MMA. I mean, she can crack. Uh, she, I mean, she's straight starch, Jessica Andrade. I mean, she, go back to the first Yuana Young-JJ fight. I mean, she 
butchered Joanna to the point where if you take a picture of Joanna's JJK that you wouldn't recognize her if you didn't watch the fight. Um, she had a KO of the year in her uh, knockout of Joanna in their second fight. Of course, that was a spinning back fist, but still. Uh, she mixes punches and kicks into combinations well, which I like. Uh, she does have some defense. Well, she eats a lot of shots. Now, she is really good on the ground, which was not always the case. I mean, she was always solid, but now she's becoming a real threat on the ground. Nice clinch takedowns, nice trip takedowns, good at winning scrambles. I mean, she she took Rose Namus down five times in this second fight. Good top game. Um, she she dominated Jessica Aguilar on the ground. Uh, she stubbed Carlos Espaza in the last fight, who Carlos Espaza is one of the greatest grapplers in women's MMA history. And, and Whaley, um, one point she had like crucifix and had her arm trapped in all kinds of positions. I mean, she looked fit. She looked fantastic in, in her last fight. Amanda Lemos, she's she's a great athlete. That's the first thing that stands out to me is just an athlete, which is funny because you she's 36 years old. She shouldn't be the explosive athlete. Um, I mean, I mean I, I, on the flip side, Whaley Zhang's 34. She's older than I thought she would be. You know, I would have guessed, you know, 31 or something like that. So uh, Lemos, very explosive, very fast. One of the best jobs jabs in women's MMA. Uh, it's a bit of an up jab that she throws from her hips. She uses feints well to set up her counters. Uh, she likes to get in the pocket and throw some hard, tight hooks. Has serious power. I mean, you, we saw what she did to Marina Rodriguez. Great kicking game. Nice calf kicks. She can battle well in the clinch. She smashed uh, Livana Souza inside the clinch. Landed some nasty elbows. She has a judo background. Nice throws. Uh, she hit Marina Rodriguez with incredible leg sweep, strong ground and pound, strong top game. Uh, she has a submission threat. I mean, she submitted Michelle Watterson with a beautiful guillotine, which is which was, you know, not the peak of Michelle Watterson, but still a pretty good bet. Uh, I already expressed my dislike of the. No, I don't want to say dislike, but my just surprise of the Vegas lines. Uh, I, I think they're way off. I think both these girls are really, really good. I think they're two of the best. Uh, to me, this should be this should be close to pick them. I mean, Whaley with being a favorite, but it should be much closer than the, what the lines are saying. I feel like Lemos, even before you told me the betting lines, that she was being extremely overlooked. When we talk about the division, you know, we're talking about Jan Shannon, we're talking about Tatiana Suarez, we're talking about maybe Whaley moving up. Wait, we talking about everything but Amanda Lemos. And I've seen Whaley Zhang get clipped before. And you know what? I'm going to say Lemos does it. I think we get some crazy exchange in the feet, and I think Lemos is the one who lands the power shot. I'm going to say Lemos pulls up this massive upset, and I'm going to say Lemos knocks her out in the third round. Amanda Lemos by third round TKO. Man, I like that pick a lot. I have been going back and forth on this one all week because yeah, like there's a huge favorite in this fight. There's a pretty substantial favorite in the headliner that I'll, when we get to it, I'll, I'll leave you to guess whether the line is, is wider or narrower, but of the two fights, this is the one where the uh, underdog has the more clear and feasible path to victory. Like I absolutely agree. It's why I asked you, what 
does it look like if Lamos as a three to one underdog wins? It's like, well, yeah, she punches her in the face really hard. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say <laughs> yeah. because it's what she does to people, and people have done it to Wei Zhang in in the past. Like, like she, I mean, she's been hit cleanly by quite a few of her opponents, uh, but arguably none with the one shot power that Lamos has. Like, and Zhang is almost certain to give Lemos the kind of fight where she's going to have those chances. This uh, fight is almost certainly going to have extended se uh, sequences of boxing in the pocket where Lemos is going to get, get a chance to land one of those hooks that, I mean, at risk of sounding like a UFC hype reel, she only needs to land one of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm still leaning Zhang here just because she's looked so dominant against like proven fighters who won their way to you know to face her like with legit wins like Yoani on Jacek in their in their second fight like Carlos Barza like Carlos Barza had so much positive momentum coming into their fight you know she was like her career well, well I mean her, her, the, the fight to win the title wasn't the greatest no 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 but I'm just but like still, she's she's the way she beat her to me speaks more yeah like uh but Zhang kind of proved herself the equal of one of the best ground fighters in the history of the division. And then before that, she proved herself way too much for one of the greatest strikers in the history of the division. Uh, I would never count Lemos out of this fight. Uh, you know, she has such power. She's so explosive. And she's proven that she has the ability to apply that power. But at, at least through three rounds, I mean, she it was still anybody's fight when she lumped Marina Rodriguez in her last fight. Like they were at one round apiece and it was still just back and forth on, on the feet, but Lemos hit her squarely once. And that was all it took. Like it was, the thing was over 10 seconds later. I would never rule out the possibility that she could do that to, to Wei Zhang. My hope for Zhang is that she does a good job of, you know, mixing in her takedowns here, gives Lemos something to think about something to maybe keep her, you know, her hands down a little bit. But yeah, I'm I'm going with the champ here to defend successfully. Give me Zhang by uh, decision here, and it's probably like a 48-47 thing where she's in trouble, in serious trouble in at least one round, maybe two, and you know we get a, a thing where it's still anybody's fight in the fifth round. That brings us to the main event of UFC 292 a men's bantamweight title fight between defending champ Aljamain Sterling and the challenger Sugar Sean O'Malley. Sterling, the 34-year-old New York native, is 23-3 overall. He is 15-3 in the UFC. He is on a nine-fight win streak since getting uh, knocked out cold by Marlon Moraes back almost uh, six years ago. Uh, he won the title about two and a half years ago over uh, Piotr Jan. Since then, he's defended it three times against Jan, TJ Dillashaw, and most recently, Henry Cejudo. The Cejudo fight was in the headliner of UFC 288 back in May. So Sterling will look to defend the title for the fourth time, moving into sole possession of the UFC record for most Bantamweight title defenses. Opposing him in that attempt will be O'Malley. The 28-year-old Montana native by way of Arizona is 16-1 with one no contest overall. He's 8-1 with one no contest since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he is on a five-fight unbeaten streak 
consisting of four wins and a no contest against Munoz, who appeared a little earlier on this card. In his most recent fight at UFC 280 last October, he took a split decision over Piotr Jan. Uh, I mean, there are a vocal few out there who thought Jan should have uh, won the fight, but you know, uh, however you scored it, he's the one that went down as the winner, and he uh, earned the right to challenge for the title here. Odds do favor the champ. Uh, Keith, in the co-main, Weili Zhang was minus 330, Amanda Lemos plus 240. Is the line in the headlining fight between Sterling and O'Malley wider or closer than that? Uh, I'm going to guess closer. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty. that first one was pretty wild. Yeah. You are correct, sir. Sterling okay. is minus Sterling is minus 275, O'Malley plus 225 as your underdog. And I think that's interesting because on some levels, Aljamain Sterling is about as disrespected a fighter as dom like for as dominant as he's been for the things he's accomplished, as I can think of in UFC history. But that line tells me that. When it really counts, when it comes to people laying down their hard-earned money, the fans maybe respect them a little more than they're letting on because there's no shortage of people out there calling him, you know, a paper champ, uh, you know, a scared champ, a guy who got lucky. But uh, well, and I'm I'm gonna get you know to to those yeah. accusations, but but I I don't I'm not sure where those those folks are when it comes time to pick up some easy money by betting on O'Malley at plus 225 because if enough of them were doing it, the line wouldn't be what it is. Uh, I mean, here's here's the thing. Like, Sterling, for whatever reason, I'm on for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, is a pretty unpopular champ, you know, at, you know, on, on the social media fandom, in the arena, depending on which arena he happens to be in when the, you know, when the, the camera pans over to him. And part of that is things that you know i won't belabor here but maybe they say more about the fans in question than about sterling but i will say that it's possible to look at his title run so far and there's asterisks hanging on everything in his last four fights that's him winning the title and defending it three times you've got him winning by disqualification you've got two split decisions and you've got a tko win over an obviously compromised fighter who should never have been in there in the first place problem is none of that is sterling's fault like, <laughs> yeah, it, that's like, right. It wasn't, it wasn't his, like the, the illegal knee from Jan. It's not, it's not like it was his yeah. choice. And I know there was plenty of narrative about, oh, he could have gone on. He was scared. He was bailing out because he was losing. Well, once Jan landed that knee and the ref determined that it was significant, it wasn't up to whether Sterling wanted to continue anymore or not. Like, like it, it, it rightly was and should have been out of his hands. Similarly, it's not his fault that TJ Dillashaw pulled a all-time scumbag move and basically hid a severe injury like throughout his camp. Like I, that's all Sterling. Uh, I don't know, a scumbag. Uh, poor. I'd say I put him more poor sport. Yeah. Okay. It's you know what? I probably already. I, I probably only called it a scumbag move because I already thought Dillashaw was a scumbag. Okay. If it was fair someone else, I would have been fair like, enough. <laughs> yeah. All right, fair uh, enough. Yeah, but. Certainly a, a selfish move. You know, it, it shortchanged Sterling. It shortchanged the rest of the queue of contenders. You know, basically the only person that really helped was was Dillashaw. Um, like, none of those things are Sterling's fault. All he's done is go out against whoever the UFC trots out against him and do his best to beat them. Here against O'Malley, the, the stakes are obvious for O'Malley. Like, here's put up or shut up time. 
like he, you know, O'Malley has a loss that he can kind of hang his own asterisk on because, you know, he obviously hurt himself early in the verify it. Uh, he has the no contest against Munoz where, you know, he was definitely beating Munoz, but it, you know, the, it was his fault that the thing ended. So he's gotten like winged here and there, but in his own mind, he's still undefeated he has a chance to back up all the bluster back up all the talk in the biggest fight of his career, pick up the title. Obviously the move from like budding star to established superstar. I mean, this might be all it takes to, this might be all it takes to complete that trip for O'Malley, but Sterling's got a lot at stake as well. Like he's, he's, on the verge of breaking the UFC record for most defenses of the Bantamweight title. He already has the record for most consecutive defenses because both Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw split their defenses across two different reigns. And he's still looking for his first real uncontroversial win or win without any sort of if, and, or, but attached to it. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's got to be highly motivated, not just to beat O'Malley, but to beat him in a way that leaves no questions so that he can either move up to 145, you know, and feel good about it or stay at 135 and we get this weird like feud and he or Marab moves to a different camp. I, I don't I don't know what the hell. Well that that's something for the recap. At any rate, kind of like Lamos against Zhang, O'Malley has things he can do to win this fight that don't necessarily require Sterling to make a huge mistake. Uh like Sterling, he's He's a good striker, but his greatest vulnerabilities are definitely still on the feet. You know, uh, a lot of his recent opponents have hit him squarely. Obviously, he has like the just brutal knockout loss to, to Marlon Marais, even if that was years ago. But if somebody could land a, a single head kick on this guy or land a single knee on him as, as he shoots and just put him all the way out, knockout of the year type thing, O'Malley is if not the top guy in the division that you'd want to pick to try to do that, he's top two or three. Uh, whatever his detractors may say about his his persona, whatever, O'Malley is a sniper of a striker. I know he's one of your favorite fighters to do tape on, and he's got a little of the next-level striking thing that someone like uh, Israel Adesanya does, where you watch him and you realize that he's a step ahead even of good strikers that he faces that, you know, he's drawing, he's playing a long game, drawing people onto his, his power strikes. It's it's a, a lot like Conor McGregor on the way up when he was such a brilliant striker where, you know, he would use his kicks to kind of herd his people into his, into his left hook. Uh, Mally O'Malley's got a lot of that. And it's why so many of his knockouts are just breathtaking to behold because he's been sizing up his opponent for it for most of a round or for a round and a half. And uh, they're surprised when it comes through. So he could definitely do that to Sterling. Just the obvious question is, will he be able to stay on his feet long enough? Uh, Sterling is, uh, was a very good amateur wrestler. He's a great MMA wrestler. And because he's a funk style wrestler, it translates seamlessly into his grappling. Like Sterling is a, is a special grappler. He's a lot of fun uh, to watch grapple. Uh, and he's just nasty, dangerous to his opponents there. I don't know if I've seen much from O'Malley that makes me think he's going to be able to keep this 
at his preferred striking range for very long. Uh, my, my thought is that O'Malley has probably about the first 40 seconds of each round for however long this goes to really line Sterling up for the shot at mid to long range than most of his kill shots have been. And I just don't think he gets it done. Uh, I'm with you in thinking the Zhang versus Lemos line was a little out of whack. Here I understand a little better why it is what it is because I, I don't think Sterling's going to give O'Malley many chances to do his thing. O'Malley's best chance would be to catch Sterling with a just brutal knee like Marias did. Uh, and I don't think he gets it done. I, I think Sterling gets O'Malley down. And I think O'Malley probably proves to be surprisingly survivable down there. I, like uh, O'Malley is, he's not a dummy. He knows exactly where Sterling's bread is buttered. He knows that I, I hope that he's been, practicing his get-up game off of his back. I, I hope he's been practicing protecting his neck in scrambles because most of this fight is probably going to be Sterling either setting up shop in top position, you know, chipping away and trying to advance, or Sterling getting funk-style takedowns and just keeping things rolling until he can take his back and, and make it a short night. I think he gets it done. Uh, give me Sterling to get a first-round submission here. Uh, emphatic work that all but his most ardent detractors will have to shut up at least for a few weeks. And the real suspense will be what's next for this division. But uh, for now, for Saturday, uh, Sterling by first round submission. And I don't think we get to see much of the sugar show. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about people who, you know, doesn't give Aljamain Sterling credit. It's funny. Even if he wins, I still don't think he'll get credit. People say, oh, you know, O'Malley was just a hype job, didn't deserve this, didn't beat anybody in the top five, or, you know, was coming off a split decision that people thought he lost. Like, they'll they'll take that away. And then, you know, he's already he, – he was on the MMA Hour today and told uh, Aaron Hawani that he's 99% sure this is his last fight at Bantamweight, win or lose. Then they'll start saying he's he ran from Marab, his teammate. You know, there'll always be something that mm-hmm. – you know, he doesn't get credit for, you know, I, I understand the hate. Like, you know, you win the title by disqualification. You defend it in a split decision. You have the T.J. Dillashaw, uh, whatever you want to call it, scumbag move. And, and then you have another split decision win. But I must be the only person who watches those and it's, and I'm constantly impressed by him. You know, he, he moves well. He's pretty elusive. He constantly fighting out of both stances, bouncing back and forth between the two, bouncing back and forth with his head off the center line. He's got high volume in his striking. Uh, he likes to work from range. You know, he's definitely unorthodox the way he throws, lands from different angles, throws from different angles, throws to kind of get reactions, get you moving away. Uh, he, he tends to not really waste energy. He kind of just touches to get you to react. And then he's not the hardest hitter. You know, he's not going to, very, very unlikely he's going to start someone with a, with a punch. But kicks are a big part of his game. I love his teep kicks. I mean, he was crushing Pedro Munoz with body kicks. Um, though Munoz did hurt him back with a body kick. Uh, nice switch high kick he has. Um, but a lot of, like I said, I kept saying that he does things to make you move and to react. He's a very opportunistic wrestler. He's going to throw something, get your hands up, shoot underneath. He isn't, he isn't explosive, but he has this good ability to time his entries very similar to in the past. I've described very similar to George St. Pierre where 
you know, it's not the fastest entry. It's not the best setup. It just he's got good timing, and he'll it, he'll dive in for a takedown. Use those long arms to close the distance. Very similar to Michael Chiesa, he's relentless to get the fight to the ground too. Uh, he uses his long legs so well to like wrap up his opponents. Uh, locks in, locks in, in takes it back. Uh, can ride back. He backpacks everybody. <laughs> I mean, he out wrestled the Olympic champion Henry Cejudo. Now you know how I felt feel about Henry Cejudo's wrestling. Uh, you've, sure. you heard me say it's it's not Olympic level anymore, but it still means a lot at any time to out wrestle a guy like that. Uh, and, and I know it wasn't complete out wrestling, but just getting takedowns, getting positions on a guy like that is a very impressive. Good. I was just going to say, ironically, despite, you know, despite Cejudo's, you know, hanging so much of his persona on being the Olympic champ, he might be a better MMA wrestler. Like he was the best amateur wrestler in the world for about two weeks. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I've, I've, I've said that these, the, yeah, I, mean, I don't want to go off a tangent, but these, his wrestling is so overrated. <laughs> you know, but we we do we do these top ten lists for sure, dog. Um, and we we were talking about wrestling, and and people were like ranking his his wrestling higher than. And and I know it's not fair. You're talking about MMA wrestling versus collegiate wrestling, but like a like a guy like him being ranked over Kenny Monday, like that's silly. That's absolutely silly. Like no, it's like no comparison. You know, um, but um. Anyways, back back on topic. Uh, he's he's a great submission art threat. I mean, that's that's his game. He has amazing, you know, variety of submission. I mean, he had a sumo stretch, you know, submission. Uh, cardio is really good. Uh, you know, he's it's got the cardio to go twenty five minutes. We saw that in his in a lot of his fights. His Pierre Yarn fight, his uh, recent fight against Henry Sudo. Uh, Sean O'Malley. What I'll say about him is is is. He's that balance. Now he's 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 confident, but with a cockiness. But it's almost a balance between Gary and, and McGregor, where his 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 unwillingness to like to admit defeat to me is it's not a cockiness. Now he is cocky, but it's. Um, I don't know what the word is. It's it's almost like unwillingness to give up on himself. You know, um, he seems very mentally strong, and he, he I, I really think he's going to try to get into Aljamain Sterling's head this year. Try to get a person. Try to get Aljo to stand up and strike with him and make him want to hurt him, and, and you know, psych him out a little bit. He's a he's a long and lengthy striker who's a very good athlete. He he, he flows between his stances so well. Very fast. Very fluid quick twitch you know you, you talk about all the striking and, and the things you do his accuracy is the most impressive thing to me about his game he, he lands clean nice jab good variety of striking he's one of the best of like distracting with the left hand to hide his right hand which is like a kill switch you, you said he well I'll, I'll, I'll say good at beating his, his foe to the punch also good at picking up his opponent's timing rhythm uh, he likes the late traps that the, his opponent falls into does well with feints, good at slipping shots and, and leave himself in position to counter. Uh, though he does sometimes pull his head straight back uh, and he does drop his hands when slipping shots. Uh, and he can also coast at times. I mean, we saw that against Pedro Munoz. We saw that against Marlon very early on where he's letting them get off and, and not come back. He, you, you, know, you look at his build, you don't think he's going to be this power puncher. 
But I mean, he starches dudes. Even even fights that he doesn't that win by knockout. He, I mean, say what you want about that Pierian fight. He hurt Pierian many times. Mm-hmm. You know, that fight was that fight was way closer than the 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 Sean O'Malley hate group pretends it was. You know, like I could watch that fight a hundred times and, and score fifty times for, for O'Malley. Like it, Jan was hurt many times in that fight, uh, and you said that O'Malley is the guy who's most likely that could like one punch knockout Sterling. And at first I was like, ah, oh, now there's got to be someone in the division. Then I started scrolling through the names of the division when you said that. And I can't find anybody. Like I had a hundred bucks and I had to bet on someone to knock out Sterling, but you know, with a punch or something to me, it has to be O'Malley. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, who, who's the hard hitter that I'm in the division. Um, so, I mean, this guy's more, more technical boxing, but, and well, not much more technical, but but the pure power. I mean, it's there. Uh, he so he's he's got good power in both hands, and he also got good power in both stances. Uh, he sets up spinning attacks pretty easily. He's creative. He doesn't check leg kicks, which is you know I said this last time, but it's a major issue. I mean, we've seen it in a couple fights now. But in fantasy, he did check leg kicks a little bit against opinion notice though it wasn't enough he's he's not much of a grappler so far in the ufc he hasn't really faced a top-notch grappler or someone whose main uh strategy is to wrestle him but he was taken down six times for purity on which is which is not a good sign in his last fight now he's pretty good at creating scrambles and getting up which i like and he showed that he has a good gas tank that even like a close battle right there he could find something dig deep and, and, and win a close fight so, regardless how you feel about O'Malley, regardless if you think he won or you lost, you know, he showed that he's upper echelon talent in the division. You know, even if you think he lost to Young. That said, I'm with you. I think this is a poor stylistic matchup. You know, Sterling is a better wrestling Jan, and Jan was able to take down O'Malley. Uh, he's the better grappler than Jan. You know, Sterling said something about uh, you know the UFC delaying this fight that he was supposed to fight. O'Malley next, but they give him Henry Cejudo to give O'Malley, you know, the golden boy of the UFC, the guy they want to win an extra year to train jujitsu and be ready. Uh, I don't, I don't know how true that is. It could be just pre-talk, but I still don't think it's mad. It's gonna matter. I think, I think Sterling takes down O'Malley. I think he uses heavy grappling. I think it's really smart. O'Malley kind of like basically calling him a, a pussy and saying, you know, if whoever shoots first. It's a pussy and you know, trying to make it a hundred dollar bet or something. It's, uh, it's the exact same the thing that you know, like Connor tried on Dustin Poirier. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like the first <laughs> one that shoots a dusty bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so say what you want about Sterling. Like he even made a joke. He's like, "Oh yeah, if I you know first one to shoot, but is a is a body lock take that considered a shot?" I'm like, <laughs> you know, um, like Sterling. Pay the hundred bucks, <laughs> like shoot, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, the win bonus would be more than a hundred bucks. Uh, I, I think we see heavy grappling. I think that slows O'Malley down. I think that zaps O'Malley's power the further we go in the fight. I think Sterling wears him down, tires him out. I think Sterling eventually locks in a submission. I say Sterling wins by submission in fourth round. 
All right, that's two picks for Aljamain Sterling to uh, retain his title by submission. One early, uh, one late, depending on which of us uh, you want to go with there. But we both seem to think that uh, the Funk Master will get yeah, one more stab at, at the, the mass acceptance that on some level he must crave. That's it. That is the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 292, Sterling versus O'Malley. I've been Ben Duffy. He's been Keith Schillen. If this is your first time checking out one of our previews, thank you. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We do our best to bring a mix of actual in-depth analysis and the occasional uh, humorous or historic aside. Please do like, subscribe, uh, drop us a comment. Keith and I both man the comment section. Uh, we'd love to hear your take on these fights or if you think we're completely uh, you know, out of our gourd on any of these, there's a good chance you're right. And if you're right, then we'll give you all, all the credit. Uh, most importantly, though, join us for the recap. Uh, we're live on the SureDog YouTube page, usually about 10 or 15 minutes after the main event, uh, where we break down all of these fights in reverse order from the headliner all the way down to the first prelim, talking about what was good, what was bad, what was surprising, what was controversial. There's always something. And talking about what's next for some of the notable winners as well as losers. And the uh, live chat on the SureDog YouTube page is open that whole time. So we are going back and forth with you in real time, taking your questions, your comments, and your hot takes. We have a growing community of friends that hang out with us after the fights, and we would love for you to be part of it. Uh, Keith, of course, will be on site in Boston, taking in these fights live. Keith, I wish you safe travels. I know it's Thank you, you know, I know you can beat a Boston quicker than I can beat a Dallas, but uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, I, I hope you have safe travels. I Thank hope you, you are rewarded with a great night of fights, and uh, yeah, like I hope you're able to return and report, you know, whatever cool behind the scenes shit you saw. Uh, yeah, uh, can I say this real quick? So, please. to any of our listeners, um, I know um, I got. I, I think he messaged me on social media. One of the one of the listeners messaged me. If you're in Boston this weekend for the fights, and you're going there, and you're a listener, a frequent listener show, send me a message. If if I, I'd love to meet some people. So if you're, if you go, and and maybe we can make it happen, I can meet you guys. Uh, that'd be cool. There you go. Uh, so if you're gonna be in Boston, get in touch with uh, Keith. Either way, thank you again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and by all means, enjoy these fights.